0: Thank you.
1: Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMPP's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always my co-host Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew?
2: I'm I'm interesting, Darren. It's uh, it's it's <laughs> it's a week where we're we're where Petrina is away, so the place is Aww. covered in uh, tissues and um, bottles of my own urine. Um, how how are you, Darren?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes! This week we are very, very briefly going to discuss the aviator. Because that is clearly what Andrew is referencing, but he hasn't turned on his video camera, yeah. so I can't be sure one way or the other. The tissue um, scared me, I'm not going to lie. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he keeps telling us he can't turn on the camera because his what, fingernails are so long, but I'm not sure I'd buy it.
2: I've just got a terrible cold. It's um, <laughs> just a wicked cold. Um, just come come in come in, and hand me the milk. <laughs> uh,
1: and... And also joining us for this discussion, the wonderful Jay Coyle. Now, this is not a normal episode of the 250. This is actually, we're going to segue into an episode I recorded of the Movie Palace back in March with the wonderful Carl Sweeney, who will be joining us to talk about Hugo uh, in a couple of weeks on this season here. You whore, though. Um
2: it's like, oh, it means nodding, Andrew. Come on, I just got to do it for the publicity. You go, Bill.
1: Yeah, got yeah, a crossover there, baby. Get a bit of sync there. But yes, yeah, so for, for people listening on the 250 feed, before we feed into that, just very quickly going to ask Andrew and Jay what they made of the Aviator, what they think of the Aviator. So, Andrew, you first. I, what do you think of the Aviator?
2: I really quite liked it. I I I felt like it was... A um, kind of Scorsese put to good use because the 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 movie is really gross and disgusting, but in 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 a very kind of uh, watchable and also sort of very pointed way, you know, um, as 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 in like it, it's it's gorgeous, but it's kind of pointing the audience to the excesses of America and how kind of um, uh, gross that is, but also kind of on, on some level celebrating it. And they, the, the, the dance I think that it does is very interesting. It also works very well. Uh, it, has, it has a bit in it that every Scorsese uh, movie should have, where it says one hour, 45 minutes later. Um, Has that, that, <laughs> that, that feature should be available? Sorry, sorry. Um, Yeah, and it, it's also it's it like like I, I I know this is a uh, movie palace episode, but it's a very two fifty uh, film because it, it's got the most inappropriate uh, smoking. Uh, smoking with and food waste. waste. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the, the the it's 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 a marriage made in heaven. Oh.
1: And and Jay, what about yourself? Do you remember the first time you saw um, the Aviator? Yes, because I'm
3: ancient. I saw it when it came out of the cinema, uh, like most of these. Um, I really like it. It's it's a classical Scorsese sweeping epic, and it's about Hollywood, which Hollywood loves. So you know that you know movies about themselves. Awards nominations, want. baby. Yes, yes, and has the cast that kind of dreamy cast of you know stars playing like nothing parts and nothing yeah. you know Jude Law Zero Jude Flynn. Law as Errol Flynn <laughs> yeah 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 so it's, it's, it's that kind of classic sweeping film that Scorsese you, you suspect could knock out two a year if he was given enough money and a bit of time because he, it's kind of in his DNA to do it uh, and it
2: Sorry, I was just going to say to your point about it being a movie about Hollywood, it's about Hollywood even when it's not about Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, like, yeah. About, about like going over budget on a yeah, on yeah. huge project. On your project. Yeah,
3: oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, if but fly, Andrew, to it, fly it fly for 12 <laughs> seconds or whatever. it doesn't matter. It's worth 500 billion in, the, in the government tax money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's a little bit of Scorsese self justification oh, in yeah, there, I sure think, where that. it's like, yeah, you could yeah, literally predict- justify
3: his budget the man on this on, that, on this booze juice <laughs>
1: <Yeah. deuce. laughs> absolutely well, I mean, like coming off the back of you know a couple of weeks ago we talked about like gangs of new york which was the yeah. first scorsese epic which somehow still managed to go over budget yeah um and not the last it would seem no um, not. i mean I...
3: the aviator you can see where the money goes in the aviator it, it, <laughs> it's glossy it it's using that kind of two strip tech uh sort of technicolor thing to you know those kind of strong greens and reds and stuff that that really impressive uh, irritate to some people. Not everybody loves that, uh, yeah. but the, but I like it. The
2: polarized sort of irreality of it. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the, um, I think it it ran over budget because Scorsese was just like kind of show me all the screenplays, show show show, <laughs> yeah. show me all the screenplays. Yeah.
3: <laughs> what what do we think of DiCaprio's performance though? I I, I like I th- it isn't it. I think it's very. I good. think
1: this is. I think this is the one I mentioned last week. I'm not a big fan of him in Gangs of New York. I think here is where he clicks. I think yeah, here is okay, where he and great. Scorsese figure out. Yeah, he and Scorsese figure out exactly what he can do for Scorsese. Yeah. Which is that incredibly nervous energy, that kind yeah. of like frantic kind of movement. I think actually this is also a great example of like last week he kind of teased it. But the idea of the Scorsese... And DiCaprio relationship is generally seen as something that favors DiCaprio. And it does flatter him in a lot of ways. But it's also a relationship that I think helps Scorsese. In large part because, A, it allows him to get these big budgets because he's working with inverted commas, the last movie star. But let's not get into that. But also because DiCaprio repeatedly throughout his career, and I kind of love that he does this. He now has Scorsese in his little Rolodex of numbers and literally calls him up and says, Hey, Marty. I was doing this movie with Michael Mann about the life of Howard Hughes and it didn't work out. Mann's gone. Would you like to fill in? Would you like to come on board and kind of help us out and direct this one? It's got a big budget, lots of cash, and it's about Hollywood. Come on. You know you want to Marty. Marty says, okay, fine. And I kind of like, I like the idea that like DiCaprio around this time kind of manages to help turn Scorsese into a mainstream filmmaker, you know, because we talked on the podcast before about how he wanted to be Coppola and he wanted to be Scorsese, sorry, he wanted to be Spielberg. And he wanted to be like Lucas. And he never got to be that. I kind of like that, you know, it's, it's in this stage in the 2010s with like, you know, Gangs of New York, this, The Departed, arguably, you know, kind of like Wolf of Wall Street as a summer, as a winter blockbuster, that you start to see Scorsese get these huge budgets get this huge attention with the releases and kind of get these movies that but, you know become globally at least kind of recognized they're still adventures. risky films though i mean oh absolutely it, because he
3: can't help but but almost self-sabotage the box office because that's because <laughs> yes. his yes. interests lie far away from spielberg's <laughs> interest and lucas's interest and even coppola's yeah. interest uh to the yeah. lord agree. like he doesn't really give a his- about how the characters in his films are perceived Yes, and that's a real problem, despite the Caprio's and the large starry cast, particularly this because you get Blanchett, you get the, who wins an Oscar, and you get people like that. so. These this helps, similarly to what you're saying about DiCaprio. But the carprio. Yeah. but this is probably as polished and as clean as one would get in terms of selling it. But generally yeah. speaking, the rest are are a hard sell. And Wolf of Wall Street is a success despite that, not because of yeah. it. <laughs> yes. you know that, yeah, that's interesting to me.
2: I think I. Did. I think Howard Hughes is very sympathetic in some ways because he's um, because he's so ill. Like the, yes. the, 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 yes. um, and it's it's as well kind of it's very sympathetic as well because I think that DiCaprio is not only kind of like doing playing kind of like a, a weird sort of creepy character which he does really well. But also <laughs> a uh, Playboy,
1: vulnerable one. Yes.
2: Yeah. Which, 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 and 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 this idea of like, oh, look at all these great things that uh, Howard Hughes has. He's got all this money. He's got all these women kind of hanging out And He's making these great movies, and but he's he's um, he's not happy, and there 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 is there is a kind of a desperation kind of yeah. Um, uh, that 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 DiCaprio plays really well.
3: Yeah, I, I also think it's probably the first time DiCaprio is um, is plays older convincingly in the film. Yeah. Perhaps uh, like he's so boyish that he seems like an adult. Yeah. He seems like an adult, yeah, particularly in the older scenes. And it's like, and he works really well. And he has the he has the help for it, which is it was kind of surprising in a way that he had it that even at that age, like he carries yeah. it really well at the older, and it reminds me of. The end of Giant, if you ever see it, or even a little bit of Citizen Kane, or The Godfather, you know with the tash and the the kind of yeah. that look, that kind of haunted eyes. If you have that massive close up near the end, which is gorgeous. Uh, Obviously, yeah. his eyes and the kind of bridge of his nose is really beautiful, um, and it does feel like Brando and The Godfather esque in terms of that kind of even bit building in actors in some ways. Like, but he's very good. He more justifies the the kind of calling him,
1: and he really brings it. Yeah, you can see why from here that he becomes like scorsese's go-to actor yeah I as opposed to like yeah. if, if you watch gangs of new york you'd imagine he'd be like a one-shot like nicholas I, 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 I would
3: probably agree i think he was lucky and i think a star power kept him up there i kept yeah. him in the thing like but yeah i'd yeah. agree
1: and, and the fact that he could pick up the phone and say like yes. we, our director dropped out would you like to sub in on this because again like marty did a whole press tour after this like talking to the independent places where he would do things like say um you know, this is going to be my last big movie. I'm not going to direct any more big movies after this. And kind of, it's it's kind of strange then that we go really, really in hindsight. Stop um, that. Word. Yeah, because right you've got because I, I think you talked about in The Irishman where there's a sense of Scorsese reaching a point where he's like, I only have so many movies left in me. And it's it's kind of like this is the point where it starts for him. This is the point where he starts giving interviews where he's talking about how he only has so much left yes. in him. And it's kind of it's it's strange that like it ends up being a literal second wind for him. That, like, you know, from Gangs of New York and this, you end up sweeping into an era where, like, half of Scorsese's movies on the 250 are from this stretch of his career. Like, from 2006 is, is that onwards. because young
3: people only That's don't go back
1: to see the old films?
3: Because, you know, and I mean old as in, like, you know, the 90s <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Pre-1999. Never mind, never mind yeah. the 70s, like, but, like, yeah. they probably only see this decade's Scorsese films in the round, like, at a certain that's rate, fair
1: perhaps. that's fair yeah they would come in live or whatever as opposed yeah, to yeah yeah but I mean yeah. and,
3: but still, some of the older ones are represented also so it doesn't all work that way yeah
1: but it's kind of interesting how this is like a burst for him this is where yeah. things kind of like it's you can break down his career I mean you can break down Scorsese's career into a variety of different modes and eras and genres and stuff but if you were to draw a dividing line in like half in like a before and after it would probably be around here that you do it I think which is, is remarkable for a director in his 70s at this point
3: yeah, I Mark mean, speaks. you wouldn't—you wouldn't think he had a Wolf of Wall Street in him. Yeah, absolutely uh, not. I mean, Jesus, I could barely watch it. I was exhausted, <laughs> and I'm half his
1: age. <laughs> All right, I think then we might segue neatly into the actual episode that I recorded with Carl. Um, but before yes. we do, we're going to do this quick three-fire questions, and we're going to make it a ping-pong round here. So, Jay, okay. you first. Do you think that av- that the do you think that Avatar? Do you think the Aviator belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made?
3: Um, probably not. To be honest, I I do love it, but it. But only in that kind of classical confectionery Scorsese way. Not that it, there's not more to that to it than that, yeah. but it, it's it's not his heftiest work, but it's still very good and very enjoyable. So perhaps not.
1: All right, and Andrew.
2: Um. Again, it, it's 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 this thing of separating the two the two yeah. questions, <laughs> yeah. So uh, like like yes, but only because I kind of like it more than other Scorsese movies, I guess. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> With this, hold on. So wait, wait, wait. Okay. Well, I guess we'll we'll jump back to the next question in a moment. I, yeah.
2: No, we. are okay. <laughs> Gonna
1: that. adhere to the format. Um, Jay, Jay, would it be in your own personal 250? Um,
3: no, I don't think so. And I mean, it, I obviously I'm a Scorsese fan, so it's I like it a lot. But I mean, it's probably a bit further down the list on Scorsese, my Scorsese list than. Then say others. Gangs of New York. I think I like Gangs of New York more. I well actually I think I like this more, but I think Gangs New York's a better film.
1: Okay. Um and then uh, Andrew then to come back to the question, so would this be on your own personal two fifty?
2: Yeah, yeah. I I I think I think it I think it might and 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 it, um in comparison to Gangs of New York as well, you get a you get a much more scarred um
1: Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> has fair yeah. <laughs> You get yeah,
2: proper yeah, paid yeah. scarring. Like, like oh. um, Guys in New York would have made, maybe made a bit more sense. <laughs> if
1: he looked <laughs> like he did at certain points. If, well, in this. not
2: if there had been a plane crash in it. Right, the,
1: the, 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 that, <laughs> that, that would be worrying.
2: The, there's, yeah, there, there's, there's a,
1: That's one more reason why we delayed it after 9 um,
2: there's, 11. There's a line from uh, The Real Thing by Tom Stoppard where he's saying, kind of like, how he loves pop music and how the big bopper died in a plane crash and was only, and Buddy Holly was only 24, and imagine if Beethoven had been only 24 and had died in a plane crash, what a different kind of history uh music would have had. And, and what aviation. A, what a, what a, yeah, what a very different history of aviation as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but would this be your favourite Scorsese film then, Andrew? I know it's probably not good, fellas, but would this be high up there?
2: Um... Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, like I, 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 I think it was, but uh, like the the because I I I, uh, kind of, I feel for, Hughes, which is weird because he's kind of like a person who's born with everything, yeah. Um, but yeah. but he he's so, um, compromised, you know, and 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 like. I, For for anyone who's ever had anything wrong with them, to like the the, it just doesn't want to be seen by other people, you know. Yeah. um, It's 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 so kind of, you know, just kind of leave leave me alone. Um, I just kind of um, and the the the, the, yeah, I I really kind of the, the passion. I guess, that he has for, had for, for, for aviation. There was something kind of really kind of inspiring about that, but in, 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 in a way that sort of may make sense with like kind of a director who, who, come to, who, who sometimes kind of uh, has these swings and misses. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I can get that. No. Totally. I, 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 Absolutely. I, as a Scorsese movie, I, 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 I quite like it. Yeah.
1: All right, then. And finally, then, before we jump into the episode of the Movie Palace, um, Jay, if listeners have not seen The Aviator, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, go out, watch The Aviator? I or would say, one without,
3: without, one without hesitation, because it's such a love. It's like, it's, it's, there is, it is challenging at times and quite dark at times, but generally speaking, it's so sweeping and so beautifully made that it, 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 it it's one of those ones that carry you along and I, it's, it's very yeah. rewatchable. So, absolutely, I'd say, yes, definitely. And Andrew.
2: Yeah, and and I think it's it's very kind of um, timely. Cause they, 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 yes, we are very they, they, concerned they about germs.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yes. Not, not, nothing, <laughs> yes, indeed.
2: Nothing is clean. And when he's talking <laughs> yeah. about, like, the way of the future, the way of the future, yeah, the way yeah. of the future, it, it's Quarantine kind of... Quarantine. That's Q, at the end of the movie, Q. and then at the beginning yeah. of the movie is, like... Uh, uh, Q-U-A-R-A-N-G. and yeah. and it's it's, yeah. it's 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 kind of like he's talking um, it, it l- like watching it now it's a very <laughs> kind of coherent through line cuz there cuz
3: 2020 yeah. is approximately 15 years long so it kind of works in time <laughs> terms as well
2: <laughs> exactly yeah 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 but um, yeah and and um,
1: we are and as far, far we'll... removed from the aviator as the aviator was from the start of 2020 exactly <laughs>
2: Watch, watch, watch this movie as well because of um, uh, Cape Blanchett. Yeah,
1: so, he's glorious.
2: So, so, so many great people. Like, I, I, I really like um, uh, uh, Danny Houston in this as well. Yes. Um, yeah, he's great. He's he, one of those
1: actors who never got enough to do, actually. He's fantastic. Oh, like, yeah, he's
2: great. Very... Like, I'd, I... I, I... <sighs> he... he, he yeah they, they, like it's it, it's always a ple- it's a real pleasure kind of seeing him in things um, I would agree yeah. I
3: really like him yeah he would have made a great joker yeah. actually
1: yes actually he has the face for it and he has the yeah. smile for it and the fringe for it you right it? actually that's, that's a very good point damn it Jay Sorry. get on Twitter and do that fan cast um, but yes alright then with that in mind then while you're contemplating that image uh, we'll leave you to the movie palace
4: Welcome back, everybody, to the Movie Palace. I'm your host, as ever, Carl Sweeney, and thank you very much for joining me this week for an episode all about a a more contemporary film than we used to. We're talking today about Martin Scorsese's The Aviator from 2004, which I'm sure you'll recall uh, stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Howard Hughes. And I'm delighted to be joined by a returning guest on this one, uh, Darren Mooney. Hey, Darren. Hey, how's it going? It's going all right. How is life? In the age of lockdown, for you, because we're recording this in mid-April, I should say. So, yeah.
1: Q, U, <laughs> A, or yeah, no, it's it's going great, as as you can imagine. And actually, I'm quite curious when you kind of pick this movie. I think, obviously, there, there are any number of reasons why this is a great choice to do for the movie Palace, although, as you point out, it is a bit more of a contemporary film. Either mm-hmm. that, or I'm much older than I think I am. <laughs> I think is the first time the movie Palace has covered. like I've, I've been invited on to talk about a film released within my cinematic lifetime, so thank you for that. Yep. But when you picked it, actually, was that a consideration? Because I was watching it, and it didn't really dawn on me until the opening scene, until I was actually sitting down and watching it, that this is perhaps a perfect movie for this moment in time. Believe it or not, that was not intentional.
4: When I put the idea to you, that didn't occur to me until a few days later. And then it didn't fully dawn on me what I'd done until I (laughs) sat down to watch the film. I'd forgotten all about that, that tableau that we opened with, you know. And um, yeah, no, my thought process was much simpler. It was just last year we did an episode on Stan and Ollie, which was the first time we'd covered a new film with a connection to old Hollywood. Um, And we also did an episode on Karina Longworth's book about Howard Hughes. And I just thought covering The Aviator would be a nice way to kind of sort of follow those episodes in, to a certain extent. But also, you know, this is a film that's, you know, it's what, 16 years old at this point? Yeah. So kind of just, yeah, just kind of branch out and expand what the podcast is doing. So yeah, those those connections didn't fully dawn on me until later, I'm afraid. But yeah, delighted to have you here. And I think before we talk about The Aviator, it might be interesting to talk about uh, Martin Scorsese in general before we get onto this particular film. I mean, this could be the subject of an entire podcast episode on its own, but I don't know, Darren, what are your thoughts on Scorsese in general? Like, why do you think many of us regard him as such a notable figure in, you know, in the world of filmmaking?
1: Well, Scorsese is kind of one of those rare figures who managed to emerge as part of the kind of new wave Hollywood in the 70s, along with figures like, say, you know, Steven Spielberg on one extreme, Brian De Palme on the other, William Friedkin, kind of somewhere between them, Francis Ford Coppola, kind of in that negative space. So he kind of came of age as that kind of young pop filmmaker pushing the boundaries of what was Uh happening in Hollywood. Uh, But what's interesting about Scorsese is that while you ended up with basically two major career paths for the directors coming out of that. The The obvious one, the big one, is the Spielberg path, where you go on, you become a blockbuster filmmaker, you become a crowd pleaser, you become like an institution of American cinema that is adored by the general public, where you're yep. one of the few directors whose marquee name can basically guarantee a box office return. Um, or you, you go the route of somebody like, say, Friedkin, or arguably even Coppola, despite the fact Coppola directed, yep. you know, some of the best movies of all time, which is you bla- you kind of flare out, you explode, you you kind of become this cult figure who exists at the margins, who, you know, in some cases struggle to get movies made. If you get movies made, they end up going around the festival circuit, things like, say, Bug or Killer Joe for Friedkin, mm-hmm. for example, or, you know, even kind of Coppola's uh, later or more recent kind of output, where there's a sense of it existing on the margins. And I think what makes Scorsese so interesting and so compelling, and I think so alluring to to people like me, and I don't mean to speak for, you know, all cinephiles or, or people who love cinema or anything like that, but just personally, what I think appeals to me about Scorsese is the fact that he exists in the space between those two extremes, where he is a director who can be intensely populist who can be insanely accessible and again you know the the cliche of like the the poster for goodfellas on every college room dorm you know the, the kind of the the way in which you know lines from casino have become kind of incorporated into everyday dialogue and that sort of stuff but also at the same time being a director who is willing to be more obscure, to do films like, for example, Condon, to pick an example, but even Silence, uh, if you want to go more recent, but even say mm-hmm. the Netflix documentaries that he's done, um, you know, that he's done covering artists and kind of low budget films or kind of small films that people will never really seek out. And yet being able to balance that with being kind of a crowd pleasing award winning director. And the fact that there's a genuine love of cinema in his work, but that love of cinema is never exclusionary, exclusionary, is mm-hmm. never sort of, um, Kind of showing off. It's never really a sense of, well, if you don't understand what I'm referencing, this film clearly isn't for you. Instead, it's a very welcoming and very broad sense of cinema, where it's like, as a teenager watching Scorsese films, I would have Missed a lot of the references, a lot of the loving kind of homages, a kind of a lot of the nods that he kind of put into his work. And I never felt like I was missing anything. They were just folded in so naturally. But as I come back as an adult, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see the affection the love for classic Hollywood in here. I mean, you know, he obviously went on to do Hugo kind of a couple of years after he did The Aviator, mm-hmm. which is the most obvious example. But even in The Aviator itself, which is, You could argue like a love letter to classic Hollywood. That's why we're talking about it here on this particular podcast. But even then, it's never the only thing that the film is. You could like, I, when I watched this in 2004, I would have been what, probably about 16, 17. I wouldn't have had a clue about classic Hollywood. And yet I was able to watch it and get a lot from it and understand it and appreciate it and kind of see it as a more universal story as well as a celebration of kind of Hollywood history. And so that ability to be... Those kind of contradictory, kind of complicated things is is a large part of why I'm drawn to Scorsese as a filmmaker.
4: Yes, I've got a lot of appreciation for filmmakers with tenacity, people who just keep going, you know. It's why somebody like Clint Eastwood, for instance, is one of my favourite directors. And in terms of Scorsese, I think he's been able to maintain a level of artistic integrity through his career that is quite astonishing to behold, I think. I think something like The Irishman, it demonstrates that he's still an incredibly kind of vital force, at least as far as I see it. Whereas you can't always say that uh, of all of his contemporaries, who yeah. people he sort of came of age with, uh, I think in general terms he's somebody, isn't he? Who's, he's got this unnerving unearth- unnerving ability to kind of marry the content of his projects with a command of film technique. You know, I think he's this kind of high stylist. He can impose a stamp on pretty much anything, but in a way that's very supple. I think. So you yeah. think of a film like Goodfellas, all sorts of like virtuoso techniques on display in that film. You know, the one I always think of first is the long and broken shot through the back of the restaurant in that oh, film. I do not know that one, yeah. And, you know, many of those kind of things are still in evidence in something like The Irishman, but they're inflected very differently in that film. You know, that's another film that opens with a long and broken shot, but one that takes on a very different character to that example from Goodfellas. Uh, and I suppose just more broadly, the fluctuations in style between his projects, they always seem very appropriate to me. Is that kind of how you see it, or, or what?
1: Yeah, well, in terms of like being a director who can accomplish almost anything, and again, who has survived everything that's been thrown at him. I mean, you know, mm. um, and and what's interesting is that you look at Scorsese's filmography and you go back and you discuss, people talk about things like the 80s being a lost decade for Scorsese or Scorsese discussing his time in the wilderness. And you look at that, like the output that he generated between Raging Bull and Goodfellas and you're like yeah. directors would aspire their entire careers to have like a period of five or six years that are as good as Scorsese's inverted commas kind of lost decade. And I think that you're entirely right about the thing, the artistry of Scorsese. And again, that, that speaks again kind of the accessibility of it, where yeah. Scorsese he is an absolute master of craft. He knows exactly what he's doing. He loves the art form in which he's working. And everything in his films is kind of very carefully designed, very carefully put together, but never in a way that feels alienating or kind of showboating. And again, you, you have this discussion where and it, it's particularly common nowadays where stuff like digital, you know, film has made it easier to do things like to, you know, one fakes to put together yeah. long takes that aren't actually long takes, there's several long takes stitched together. And so you end up with this kind of showboating from directors about oh look at the the technique and craft I'm employing here. Pay attention to my art, damn it. And what I really like about Scorsese is that it never really feels like it's showboating. It's it's that point that you made about marrying form and function the story that he's telling with the storytelling he's using to tell it where there are absolutely masterful shots and compositions particularly in the aviator and i mean we'll probably talk a little bit about the like technical prowess that went into it where everything is so carefully designed the way in which he shot it the way in which he colored the film the look the texture of the film is all very carefully chosen and very carefully drawn from hollywood history But at the same time, all of that serves to underline the themes and the stories that he's telling. And it never feels like it's just an example of Scorsese going, look at what I'm doing. It's more like I'm doing this thing and the way that it looks is part of that and it's it's a remarkable kind of balance of form and function which you very rarely see and particularly with a director of that age uh, particularly with a director who's arguably kind of set in their ways i mean i i also love Clint Eastwood i think Clint Eastwood's one of the great american directors um if i had a criticism of some of eastwood's more kind of recent work it's that <laughs> it, it it feels very much like it's that that desire to churn and to get content out there kind of like in one movie a year which again is is a level of production which would daunt younger filmmakers but there's a sense of kind of a lack of polish to it a sense of well this thing interests me so i'm making the movie now and i'm going to release it and this thing's going to interest me next year so i'll make that movie and release it then and with scorsese there's always a sense of what he does being kind of carefully crafted and very carefully put together but without showing off if that makes sense
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, with someone like Eastwood, with a lot of his more recent films, you see these scenes in them and you just sort of think, surely, Clint, there was time for another take or two.
1: Maybe not at that rate of production.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's more like the golf course was calling at 5pm or whatever.
1: Well, the next film needed to start production in three weeks, um, which is kind of, (laughs) because he's had like one or two films a year from a director at his age is astonishing. Um, So I I remain pleased that the Eastwood films are coherent in the way that they are. But yeah. And, and the fact that they're not like the Woody Allen, you know, I know, you know, obviously there are other reasons, other concerns about Woody Allen. But when Woody Allen was doing a film a year or working that voraciously, you're like, okay, well, at least, you know, they're dialogue heavy, performance driven, driven films. So, you know, the, the kind of work that goes into them, you know, maybe it isn't as demanding technically as something like Eastwood, where Eastwood is doing these films a year and he still manages to do these kind of virtuosa kind of sequences. Mm-hmm. Like there are a lot of problems. The um, Hereafter <laughs> is
4: the one I was thinking of.
1: Oh yeah, well the hereafters one as well, but even the kind of bomb, you know, the, the bomb sequence that happens oh, yeah. um in his most recent one. And again, you know, there are a lot of problems with that film. Um and there's a sense of, Really, Clint, you're doing that. But like you watch sequences like the sort of bomb exploding in that sequence. Uh sorry, of bomb exploding in the park, and you're like, Yes, this is really impressive work that you're doing. And you're doing it in, you know, one film a year, roughly, which is, is quite impressive, again, for a director his age. But Scorsese, you know, in contrast, always seems like he's much more you know, he there's a he always seems like his craft is much finer, much more considered. Um, and like but never never really feels alienating or kind of artisanal in that way, which is a remarkable balance between those two extremes.
4: Yeah, and I think that's what, you know, we can sort of tease out this connection between Scorsese and old Hollywood a bit more, which you can sort of compare him to some of the old, older figures. I know that he's very influenced by, for instance. But yeah, you mentioned Hugo is kind of a love letter to silent cinema. We're going to talk about The Aviator. You can also think of like the old style aesthetic to something like New York, New York, yeah. the fact that he remade Cape Fear, the fact that he made a sequel to The Hustler. But also I think another important facet of his kind of stature is... Just that his interviews demonstrate such a a zest for cinema, don't they, of all kinds. I mean, he's a man I've always enjoyed listening to on the subject of films. And I suppose that's kind of been complicated in some some respects for some people in the last last few months. But, you know, I've always found it an education to listen to Scorsese.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, you're, you're alluding there to the infamous, you know, Marvel are not, are not cinema argument, which is an argument I reject wholeheartedly. They are very much cinema. Um, but I think that like, if anybody's earned the right to say that, it's Scorsese. And he's speaking, you know, from his position as somebody who has put a lot of thought, a lot of consideration into it. And it's not even just the interviews. It's the art of restoration that he invests mm-hmm. in. Like Scorsese is a champion of film and it's like restoring all these old classic kind of films and bringing them to the mass again. But not even that. It, it's world cinema as well. Like, I mean, Scorsese has come under criticism and, you know, maybe earned, maybe not. But in terms of kind of, you know, his preference for films that are driven by men in particular, like white men and kind of like arguments about diversity. But if you look at the films that he produces and the films that he attaches his brand to, Martin Scorsese Presents, he's done a lot in terms of bringing world cinema to the masses and bringing films by... Female filmmakers by bringing films by minority filmmakers and trying to elevate them and to get eyes cast on them. Scorsese adores cinema and it's not just classic cinema, although it's very much you know informed by that love of history, but it's just cinema as an art form that is vibrant and kind of exciting in general. And that's why I tend to you know I think he's maybe a little bit overzealous uh, in his critique of certain trends in modern cinema. You know I think that you know the Marvel movies are cinema. I also think that himself and Spielberg, you know, when they were worried about the of the market when superhero movies fail as well. I think that, you know, maybe there's a little bit of kind of melodrama and kind of like heightened paranoia around that, but I also understand where it's coming from because, you know, we have had the death of the mid-budget movie in recent years. And while Scorsese is somebody who has the luxury of going to Netflix and, you know, as we're recording this, you know, going to Netflix again and saying, give me a budget of 160, but actually 173 million dollars to make, you know, The Irishman because I want to de-age my buddies in it, which is, you know, as somebody who loves cinema, I'm like, give me. But as somebody who's yeah. like, if I were investing my money in it, I'd be eh, is this really a viable kind of investment <laughs> model? But even things like he's, he's recently said that he's probably going to have to go to Apple TV or Netflix again for The the Killer of the Flower Moon, the, the movie that he's making with Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. and, and Robert De Niro. And he's kind of talked about how, I think la- late last year when he's touring with The Irishman, he said that, like, even today, I could not get a movie made like Shutter Island. I could not get a movie made like The Departed And most pointedly, in regards to the conversation we're having now, I could not get a movie made like The Aviator. And I think that, you know, I understand where that anxiety comes from, and I think a lot of it is earned. I'm not as kind of you know, downbeat about the future of cinema. I think that cinema is evolving and changing and, and always has been. I think that, you know, streaming services have actually done a fair amount to champion voices that maybe wouldn't have made it into the mainstream otherwise. Um, look at, say, Netflix's support of filmmakers like Dee Reese, for example. Look at the long term partnerships that you have with people like Ryan Murphy, for example, even in television, Shonda Rhimes in television. But you have this idea of kind of like investing in and kind of bringing different voices to the mass. I think Netflix has done a lot, for example, in making world cinema accessible uh, to people you have people watching narcos films and tv shows with subtitles that they probably would be less likely to go to the cinema to see because they see it as kind of a sunk investment with a netflix subscription and you have netflix you know championing artists and kind of giving them a platform, giving them budgets and less oversight than they would have had in in the modern studio system. But I also understand, you know, I miss going to the cinema and seeing something like The Aviator. I miss sitting in a dark room, having the lights go down and watching something like Shutter Island. You know, I think that like while I'm less downbeat about it uh, than Scorsese is. Well I don't think cinema is dying or dead, or even, you know, particularly at risk, in inverted commas, I do think it's changing. And as somebody who loves the way that cinema was and who loves the, you know, the kind of cinema that Scorsese, you know, brings back in films like Hugo, but also films like The Aviator, I feel that nostalgic kind of pining underpinning it. I I do feel a little sad that, you know, The Irishman couldn't have been made with Paramount as he originally intended and kind of, you know, shown in in cinemas in an exclusive window and becoming, you know, an event of itself. But I also feel glad that, you know, even if Paramount weren't going to pay for it, Netflix ponied up the cash, gave him everything he wanted, and he ended up with a film that has absolutely no artistic compromise in it whatsoever. You know, It's a two-sided coin, and I kind of get that when it comes to Scorsese. And I think that his concern comes from a place of sheer love for cinema. So I don't begrudge it, if that makes sense.
4: It makes complete sense. And um, I didn't agree with everything he said on a literal level. Like, are Marvel films cinema? Yeah, of course they are. I, I broadly was more on Scorsese's side than on many of his detractors, I'll, I'll confess. And I, I very much enjoyed the fact that he seemed to kind of relish throwing the grenade out there. <laughs>
1: and like he doubled down like that that's the great thing about scorsese's like again part of me this is like part of my inherent sort of i love a disruptor or or, you know what you might call a troll in internet parlance as long as the troll is intelligent sophisticated and shrewd you know i'm not a big fan of you suck written on message boards but i do quite like a bit of kind of performative well watch me shake this tree because you have Mm -hmm. that happen where scorsese in that interview is asked what do you think of marvel films he's like i don't think they're cinema and everyone's like whoa you can't say that man Scorsese's like, wait a minute, and he calls up the New York Times. He's like, hey, I'd like to write an editorial. I think I could do some good work here. And the headline is, you know, Marvel <laughs> films are not cinema. The first line is, a little while ago, I caused a bit of controversy when I said that Marvel films weren't cinema. And you're like, oh, is he is he going is he going to apologize? Is he going to backtrack? Is he going to like try and win people on side? He's like, I would like to explain exactly what I meant. And it's like,
0: yeah.
1: I kind of like, I adore his doubling down on it, which is kind of, I, I admire yeah. it. As much as I don't agree with it, I kind of love the, I'm going to stick to my guns uh, kind of aspect of it.
4: Yeah, well, even if you don't agree wholeheartedly, I thought that was a very, you know, uh, well-written article. Yes. You know, And he talked about the productive tension of old Hollywood. And I think there was a lot to learn from, from what he said. And as I said earlier, I think, yeah, I've learned a lot from him. I just wanted to flag up quickly, if anybody hasn't seen the... He made a documentary with the BFI in the mid-90s called A Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese for American Movies, which is four hours long where he talks at length about all different types of director, you know, the director of Smuggler and all of these things, shows a lot of great clips from a lot of great old movies, and just I've always thought it's a wonderful educational tool. I'm not sure how well known it is. I had to get like a Dutch DVD to be able to see it, but if people can track that down, that would be... Fantastic, um, Darren. We established in our Batman episode that you and I did that you are Mr. IMDb. And that's your villain name <laughs> uh, because of like... your work on the two hundred and fifty. <laughs> yeah, let's move quickly onto the aviator. What's the aviator? So, what's your sense of where this film sort of stands in Scorsese's filmography? I mean, with particular reference to IMDb, like, do you know what it has got over there?
1: Well, I mean, to be honest, in terms of like Scorsese's filmography and the aviator, like personally. Um, I really like The Aviator. I'm not sure it'll be in my top 10 Scorsese kind of films, which are probably hideously cliche, right down to the inclusion of King of Comedy as the hipster. Well, hey, now we appreciate a choice. But I've always really liked The Aviator. I found it a very warm film. So it's probably somewhere in like my you know 10 to 15 when it comes to ranking Scorsese films. In terms of the IMDb, this is interesting uh, because Scorsese is currently... One of the most represented directors on the IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time. Uh, He is currently tied... Uh, with three other artists kind of for that title. Um, the first one is, sorry, two other artists for the title. Ap- uh, apologies, there was a purge. Um, and uh, Steven Spielberg has dropped down to six because Jaws dropped out of the list, which astounds me, but that's a separate conversation. So Martin Scorsese has seven films, uh, in the IMDb 250 at the moment, tying him with Stanley Kubrick and Christopher Nolan in terms of representation on the list. Uh, Akira Kurosawa has six. But at the moment, uh, Throne of Blood is kind of coming in and out. That's currently around 250. So as you're listening to it, Kurosawa may also be kind of in that conversation, which is not a bad kind of list. And, you know, if you want to talk in terms of great filmmakers, it's also a very IMDb 250 list of great filmmakers, if we're being entirely honest. You know, the famous joke is that, you know, the... Golden age of anything is 12. And you know, you could argue the golden age of kind of 30 year old men voting on IMDb is the movies that they saw at the age of 12. So the IMDb movies that kind of have a preference are kind of Scorsese films, um, are kind of those, those films that are. Pre- Pretty much exactly uh, what you would expect them to be. Um, So I'm going to run through them very, very quickly. I don't think there'll be too many surprises uh, for Mm -hmm. listeners there. So in terms of films that are listed on the 250 from Scorsese, uh, Taxi Driver uh, is the first one chronologically, which is entirely expected. Raging Bull is the next one, uh, which is good. Um, Then there's, after that, there's a gap until Goodfellas, which was released in 1990. Um, One of the more interesting ones is Casino. Um, which is obviously a film that had its own kind of reassessment. It's it's one of the rare Scorsese films that's undergone a reassessment after its release, but is genuinely accepted as kind of one of his best films ever. You could argue that the current process is that that's happening with King of Comedy at the moment, but it hasn't quite made it. Casino seems to be like, now we're like, what were we thinking in 1995 when we dismissed it? After Casino, then, there's a bit of a gap in terms of representation on the list, jumping forward to The Departed uh, in 2006, skipping right over The Aviator, I'm afraid. Uh, Then from 2006, we go to 2010, the release of Shutter Island. And then Wolf of Wall Street uh, is there as well. Um, in terms of movies that have been on the list but dropped off, uh, Hugo uh, featured very, very briefly on the list on its release in December 2011. And The Irishman um, actually dropped off surprisingly quickly. It entered very high. It was the 61st movie, 61st best movie of all time, according to IMDb, when it entered the list in November last year. But it was gone by Christmas, which is kind of a really strange phenomenon where it just seemed to drop incredibly quickly. So that's kind of how Scorsese stands on IMDb.
4: Yeah, and well, The Irishman went from being like the award's favourite at one point, didn't it, to being completely <laughs> yeah. passed over. Like a true masterpiece, I think.
1: <laughs> well, at least it had that brief period where everybody liked it. So you're kind of assuming that at some point we'll all come around to getting back to it.
4: Yeah, I um, I had IMDb open earlier. I tried to line up all of Scorsese's films top to bottom by IMDb rating. So The Aviator, if this list I've got here is accurate, is 19th of his feature films that he's directed, with a rating of 75 So, I think that, I mean, my general thoughts on The Aviator is that this is a film I like. I think it's kind of a three and a half star film from a man who's made many five star films. That's kind of how I'd characterize it. Now, I think there's a lot of pleasure to be had in the pleasurable surfaces of The Aviator. And I think what I mean there is, is kind of exemplified by there's a, there's a moment in the film where we go from a shot of Leonardo DiCaprio's hand running across Cate Blanchett's back to him running his hand across the smooth airplane, you know, like the cut. So I think it's a very enjoyable film to luxuriate in, for instance, for the glamour on display, the costumes, the colour, the period recreations. Whilst I think there are some great things in this film, I think there are some elements that don't necessarily rise above being good. So, I don't think all of the domestic strife works quite as well here as in some of his other films. Because I think of, in some other Scorsese films, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat during like, you know, comparable scenes. So, I'm thinking of De Niro and Sharon Stone kind of going at it in Casino, for instance.
1: Yeah, or the domestic scenes in Raging Bull, even. Or Raging example. Bull.
4: Yep, definitely. And I never quite feel like that here. Now, if I'm sort of saying, I'm chalking this one up as a minor disappointment. I think what you've got to say is I think there are a lot of filmmakers who've probably never made a film as good (laughs) as as The Aviator, you know. I think it's, unfortunately, when you've made some of the greatest films ever made, perhaps you've judged a bit more harshly. I think someone like Spielberg, is probably the same thing, you know, when he brings out uh, new stuff these days. So I think, if I think of something like Raging Bull, which you just mentioned, I mean, to describe that film as a great biopic seems almost too restrictive, too limiting with The Aviator, that label, that kind of label, seems a little bit more appropriate. It's perhaps not a film that's consistently as transcendent as something like *Raging and Bull. But yeah, what say you? What do, what do you reckon?
1: Yeah, this is the thing with The Aviator, where I would probably be a bit kinder. I'd probably give it I'd probably a four-star film from a five-star yeah. filmmaker. Um, but again, I think that the same issues kind of come into play there. And I think that, for me, it, it's not quite that the kind of like the domestic scenes kind of lack frision. Um, because I think that, you know, I'm, I'm probably a bit kinder there. I think I see what Scorsese's doing with the film and again it's all in that wonderful cut that you mentioned the kind of the cut of the hand moving down kind of Catherine Hepburn's yeah. back and then cutting to the plane because it's a very tactile film. It's a film about, and again, you know when I, when I joked at the start this is a film about isolation and quarantine and it absolutely is because it like the opening scene establishes that but it's it's also very much a film about emotional isolation, about being cut off and disconnected And i kind of that stuff really landed with me this time it's probably a result of you know the times that we live in and looking at it through that prism but i think that you know as scorsese films go scorsese is a director who is very interested in this theme of kind of like the self and kind of cutting yourself off and the connections that you have to other people he very famously wanted to become a priest um, and he didn't and the reason why he didn't he gave two reasons the first one was that he felt that he should if he wanted that vocation he should choose it for the greater good not because it served his own interests and so him wanting to be a priest disqualified him from being a priest which is an interesting approach to take but the other angle that he took is that as a kid who was who had asthma um, and had breathing difficulties um, he couldn't play sports and he could he had difficulty interacting with kids his own age and connecting with kids his own age and he always felt kind of cut off and isolated from them as well and so you know he didn't want to become a priest because he saw that path that vocation being very isolating from his fellow man being something that kind of cut him off and you can see it throughout um scorsese's filmography these these stories of people who cut themselves off physically who cut themselves off emotionally uh, most crucially you know the the classic Scorsese study of masculinity is a man. Who cannot connect with other people because he will not let himself do that? And I actually think *The Aviator* is is one of the better films in Scorsese's filmography because obviously the subject matter lends itself to that, where you have Howard Hughes kind of cutting himself off from the world around him, putting himself in literal self-quarantine. But you know, not just emotionally, but physically. So I actually really like the kind of that that coldness that you mentioned, the kind of the lack of friction in the domestic scenes, because it feels like a result of that isolation. For me, the problem is, and again, this feels our ironic as somebody who's like yeah i love the irishman it was my favorite film of last year um it's a sense of pacing and kind of length and i think that you know the aviator is a film of two halves and I think that I find the first half, which is much more focused on Hugh's personal life and his mm-hmm. relationship with Hepburn, his relationship with other women um, and his relation kind of like the, the beginnings of kind of the the psychosis that would come to consume him. Um, I find that much more interesting than the second half, which is a film that is much more about kind of conventional, um, you know, obsession and kind of, you know, is the part of the film that just begs you like it, you're staring at it and it's staring at you and it's going, go on just do it and you're like okay fine this is a metaphor for how difficult it is to realize your vision as an artist um and it's like yeah and it's like you know that stuff is great i think it's really well constructed i think scorsese has a wonderful eye and there's a lot of passion underscoring it and it's a good movie but for me that always that second half feels disconnected from the first they don't really tie together in the way that like scorsese's best long films do Where, again, The Irishman, which is a longer film, but somehow feels shorter, manages to work because it ties all of that together with that powerhouse final 45 minutes, which are, you know, one of the best endings Mm -hmm. I've seen in film, you know, and it's almost as long as a film itself, you could argue, but because it feels like a logical flow from where you've been, what you've gone through to where you are. And The Aviator, for me, suffers a little bit because it doesn't have that clear a bridge between its two extremes. You can see the threads connecting, and again, you, you logically have this kind of sequence in the second half where he comes out of quarantine, where he connects with Ava, and he kind of brings himself and forces himself out into the world, and that kind of allows him to, to come together and to kind of to triumph. But at the same time, it feels like the film pivots a little bit too sharply. It, it, it starts being about something else about an hour and a half into the runtime, which is, is something that in a long film you have to do very carefully. And I'm not sure the aviator, for me at least, does that carefully enough.
4: Yeah, I mean, again, if I'm talking about a lack, it's a relative lack. Like I say, it's still a film I find a lot of, you know, get a lot, derive a lot of pleasure from. And um, I think the sort of bridges between different sections that you speak of there. I mean, sometimes that's explicitly kind of announced, isn't it? Thinking of like the shift in colour palette um, yeah. at a certain point, for instance. Um,
1: and the title cards, they give you like times and yeah. location stamps. So it's like, oh, we're doing this now.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can return to a lot of these issues, but I just wanted to start on a more sort of brass tacks uh, point, really. So... It's interesting, I think, because this is a project Scorsese inherited. Um, the Aviator had been developed by Michael Mann for and with Leonardo DiCaprio for a period of about two or three years before, I think, Mann was coming off of The Insider and Ali, yeah. and he sort of opted to steer clear of another film with like historical subject matter. I think this was about the time he made Collateral, uh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Uh, so then Scorsese came on board. Um, so it probably made, a nice, made for a nice change of pace for him after Gangs of New York, which... It's kind of a famously troubled production and clashes with Harvey Weinstein, all, all these things. So he, this was, I think, quite a big budget film, around $115 million. It had been turned down by all the studios. Uh, it ultimately was made because of the backing of uh, independent producer Graham King. So if we're saying this is a film that he kind of, you know, he didn't originate this material necessarily, and somebody else was shepherding it for a long time, it still feels like quite a good fit for Scorsese to me.
1: It does indeed. Well, I mean, this is one of the things where you have that kind of, we, we mentioned like part of what the appeal of Scorsese is that flexibility, that ability to exist in two worlds at kind of one time, where you can be this, this director who has this strong artistic vision, but you also have this ability to be accessible and to be kind of welcoming and to be kind of, you know, inclusive. And it's notable as well that you, you mentioned this beginning as a Man film. When this picked up a Best Picture nomination, Scorsese didn't get a Best Picture nomination for it. He wasn't listed on there. It was Michael Mann who was listed on the best, on the Best Picture nominees um for this film. And again, there's a sense of I think it was actually DiCaprio um who was responsible for getting Scorsese involved in this. Which is again kinda of, kinda of interesting because it gets at that relationship that you have between, you know, Scorsese and DiCaprio. Because you've you've again, when you talk about Scorsese's filmography you have these two great artistic muses that he's had in terms of his feature film production. Robert De Niro, obviously. You know, we mentioned yeah. films like, you know, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, you know, going back to Mean Streets, or even back to his earliest films as well. But you have this kind of sense of, you know, this this muse that existed. And then, you know, sort of Scorsese kind of then becoming partnering with with Leonardo DiCaprio. And obviously Gangs of New York was kind of a big moment for them in terms of coming together. And this is as well, because there's a sense of... Kind of, you know, of basically DiCaprio saying, yeah, this this film I'm working on, I know the right guy for it. And the right guy for it is is kind of Martin Scorsese. And you have this sense with DiCaprio where, you know, in the 90s, he was coming off this sense of being a young heartthrob, a kind of a teen actor. And again, one of the things that I think is central to DiCaprio's appeal as an actor, what makes him a really great performer to watch, is that kind of star persona where... Mm-hmm. All his, all DiCaprio's work has this kind of desperation to it. Um, and it's a strange thing to talk about desperation when you're talking about one of the most handsome men in the world, who is one of the <laughs> last movie stars in existence, um, who is one of the rare actors who can get like a high budget, adult oriented film kind of released in cinemas and have it make a profit. So it's kind of strange to talk about a man like that and say, yeah. But all his films seem so desperate. But there is this <laughs> sense of desperation that runs through, like, the best of his performances. And I'm thinking, in particular, say, most recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Tarantino uses DiCaprio's desperation in contrast to Brad Pitt's, Well, I'm here and that's good enough, kind of like casual, cool, I'm super relaxed to create a contrast between the two. Christopher Nolan, 2010 with Inception, where that movie is driven by, again, DiCaprio's kind of frantic, kind of like, ah, 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 kind of desperation and kind of urge and kind of like drive to accomplish what he's doing. And whenever you're watching DiCaprio, there's this wonderful intensity. And again, I'm worried about seeming like I'm psychoanalyzing him. I don't think I am. But where there's a (laughs) sense of like, take me seriously as an actor that kind of comes from a place of beginning as a teen heartthrob, breaking out as a teen heartthrob. And again, a sense of rebelling against that, uh, you know, where you have in the 90s, you have him kind of skewering his celebrity persona in Celebrity with Woody Allen, for example. But what you have is even coming into the new millennium after the success of Titanic, you have DiCaprio completing what has been described as his greatest living director bingo card where it's like yeah I want to work with Tarantino I want to work with Ridley Scott I want to work with Scorsese I want to work with Spielberg um, and basically just rhyming all these kind of directors off and kind of trusting them to basically give him material that he can use where he can be kind of taken seriously as an actor and again I think that works really well here but again it's remarkable in the sense of him latching on to Scorsese as a director that he trusts incredibly and again I would argue that you know as much as I love Inception and you know as much as he won the Oscar for The Revenant I don't think DiCaprio has found a director with whom he has an easier rapport than with Scorsese Um, and I think the two understand each other very very well and I think that it's kind of interesting that you know you look at the development history of The Aviator. And, you know, arguably not even just the development history of The Aviator. You have this long history of, and again, it's because Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. Hollywood loves making movies that kind of glamorize it and kind of nostalgically look back at its own past. And again, you point to, like, Best Picture winners like Argo, you know, as an example of this, or The Artist as an example of this. But, like, there's a sense of, like, everybody in Hollywood at one point or another wanting to make a Howard Hughes biopic. You have like Christopher Nolan's one that he was working on with Jim Carrey briefly. You have Milos Foreman who was working on around about 2000 with Edward Norton. And you can kind of almost see that in certain segments of The Aviator where DiCaprio is kind of working on his kind of, um, you know, repetition, where he's kind of repeating these mantras to himself. And you can almost see that like in 2000, you could do that with Edward Norton. And I find it kind of amazing that, like, the one director who ended up actually making the Howard Hughes biopic of the 21st century was the one director who actually didn't seem that keenly attached to it. Who, like, was just almost kind of brought in by chance or by accident to work on it. And I think that while that's true and while that's the case, it's to Scorsese's credit that it feels like a Scorsese film. It and again, you know, we, we kind of we've alluded to to how it feels like a Scorsese film. It has those themes of isolation, those themes of kind of remove. Um, and there's so much that runs through it the way in which his camera looks at like touching and contact and hands the motif of hands you mm-hmm. have the sequence of you know like the sequence where Howard Hughes is kind of projecting film onto his hands the sequence in which he's holding Gene's hand during the premiere the way in which his, his first real OCD kind of germophilia germophobic attack comes when he's watching Catherine Hepburn being manhandled by Louis C. Meyer for example um, you know you have this or Louis B. Meyer apologies but you have this kind of sense of how important touch is um obviously which is important in the sense of making a movie about howard hughes who was a famous uh, germaphobe but in terms of being a film that's about contact and about communion and about touching and about obsession and then even in the second half you have like which i mentioned earlier is kind of feeling somewhat disconnected from it but you have this kind of theme of you know great vision And this theme of kind of like spending money and not getting a return on money and this idea of kind of like a project into which you sunk your passion and your heart in which you've invested, you know, countless millions of dollars, you know, of money that isn't technically yours, but you haven't managed to deliver a product that is up to specifications for it. And while in the context of the film, that's like... Well, you didn't build these planes that you said you would for the U.S. people, you know, in the sense of this being a Scorsese film, this being a film about a director who has, you know, we've mentioned managed to stay profitable, managed to stay on budget. Despite all that, you know, has had his share of embarrassments, but has watched his colleagues kind of struggle with overrunning budgets and failing to earn return from studios. And again, you have this sense of kind of that maybe being as something that kind of touches kind of what Scorsese was kind of feeling or thinking about that moment. You mentioned this came right off the back of Gangs of New York, which was Scorsese's passion project. You know, they talk about the, the white elephant, can a white elephant fly when they're driving the Hercules down the road? Like, Watching the release of Gangs of New York, which was a passion project for Scorsese, something he had wanted to make for decades, something that he planned to do with Robert De Niro, it was that old, and finally managed to kind of realize that. And then watching it, you know, A, garner some of the weakest reviews of his career to that point – become embroiled as you mentioned in that argument that happened with Harvey Weinstein and kind of the cutting and the editing of it as well and then you know D that the financial returns on it which were maybe not what everybody expected it to be you almost get a sense of watching that play out in the, in the second half of The Aviator and I mean it's notable that even in the context of The Aviator when Hughes is kind of confronted uh, by this sort of subcommittee with that with the fact that he spent other people's money and he didn't get a return on investment his response to that is yeah, but I also put in my own money because I believed in it so much. It's notable that Scorsese himself has argued that with The Aviator, which is a film that also went over budget. You mentioned it has a it had a very large budget for what it was doing, particularly for a filmmaker coming off a somewhat troubled production that it maybe not earned as much at the box office as people would have hoped. Scorsese apparently put some of his own money in the film to make up that difference between his projected budget and what the film actually costs as well. So there's a real sense of this, to a certain extent, feeling like Scorsese dealing with some of that, working through some of that, if that makes sense.
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't think it's hard to see why Howard Hughes would appeal to him as a protagonist, you know, someone powerful who's held back because he can't escape from his own flaws, can't escape from himself. As you already said, somebody who was drawn to excess, somebody who pushed the boundaries. And yeah, it's not. I think mean, you also mentioned that Scorsese had um, grown up as quite a sickly child. I think it was also his brother, I believe, had had polio before Scorsese himself was born. So I'm sure he could definitely could have empathised with uh, Hughes's kind of sheltered childhood. What he says, I saw in an interview where he said that he was fascinated by this character that John Logan had written. Not least because he was someone you couldn't interpret in a simple, straightforward way. And that seems very Scorsese to me. Like, one thing I've always appreciated about his films is that, I don't know, almost you can find a core of humanity in people who are otherwise very reprehensible, I think, in a lot of his films. What he says is that the screenplay for this film reminded him of the way Paul Schrader structured the screenplay for Raging Bull. It offered an original perspective on Hughes' life. And it means we never fully see Howard Hughes a popular memory, doesn't it? It means we never see him hold up in Las Vegas, for instance which is definitely an interesting choice. What Scorsese says is that he kept thinking about this a lot during the production, kept talking about it with people. But when he saw the dailies from the sequence with Hughes in the screening room, his mind was settled. Like, look, there's no need to show Howard as an old man. You know, there he is, kind of thing. Like I say, definitely a striking choice. Uh, what, What do you make of that? Do you have any qualms about that?
1: This is kind of interesting that you should kind of mention that because I actually, I think that you're entirely right in terms of Scorsese being a director who doesn't shy away from warts and alls. I mean, you know, Raging Bull is, is one of the greatest movies ever made and you're quite right that like describing it as a biopic almost feels kind of, you know, like it minimizes what that film accomplishes. But it very much does capture this sense of a person who is at their lowest ebb and is maybe not a good person in inverted commas, but is still deserving of our sympathy and our empathy to a certain extent. I think that what I find interesting about the aviator is that despite, you know, the point of comparison that, you know, that, uh, that he makes there to the Paul Schrader work is that the aviator, while I, you know, I'm hesitant to use the word sanitize because I think it does actually cover some of Hughes's ex- excesses. And, you know, it, it's not, a you know, always the most flattering of portrayals and it's quite candid about some of his failings. I do think that it obscures some of the most controversial or some of the worst aspects. It kind of glides over some of the aspects of, of Hughes's personality and his, his history that maybe you know would render him less sympathetic to audiences um, if they were rendered on film. I don't quite see this you know, and again, who am I to talk to Martin Scorsese about how he sees his film, but I don't see the script in the same way as a companion to kind of Raging Bull or anything like that. I don't see it as that kind of grimy study of masculinity that you would expect with something like Taxi Driver. I think that element is there, I just don't think it's brought up in the mix, and it's kind of interesting to hear Scorsese talk about it in a way that suggests maybe he thought it was, because I think that the movie is quite kind to use, perhaps.
4: Yeah, I think that... um I think he also said that when he read this screenplay, he, he, Scorsese said he sort of remembered hearing news of uh, Hughes's aviation exploits on the radio as a child. And then he it was kind of surprised, like 15 pages into the, this screenplay, he kind of realised what story it was telling. And you're right, there were other aspects of Hughes's life, like we don't get anything, we don't get to the point where he's kind of running RKO and he's just absolutely this controlling figure of all these women he's got on contract and, and, and so on and so forth.
1: Or like the the car accident that killed the pedestrian Gabriel S. Mayer and yeah. stuff like that as well, yeah. Like, yeah, and
4: yeah. it glosses over the, the full extent of his womanizing, I think, as well. And those are some of the criticisms I've heard about the film that there are certain omissions and simplifications. Also, seen it suggested that it plays up his OCD in a manner that's chronologically a bit unjustified. It's a very interesting topic, I think, like how mindful we should be of such historical revisionism. And I think one of the criticisms we could make about mainstream biopics in general, perhaps, is that they contribute to a skewed sort of sense of history from above, don't they? Yeah. You know, The idea that history is shaped by all these significant people, the kings and queens, presidents, prime ministers, etc.,
1: and and the fact that a person you know the basic idea of this kind of biopic and i know that you're entirely right that it avoids the kind of later years in in las vegas but the sense that you can sum up an entire life in even 3 hours um is kind of always going to seem you know a bit of an oversimplification
4: yeah i think yeah, i think so i think i think to fully understand the importance or you know to fully understand a notable figure's life you need to map out their whole life rather than focusing on one particular moment in time or a limited period of time. But I think the best medium to do that is probably biographical writing, isn't it? Narrative filmmaking is not perhaps the best medium to provide that kind of focus, but films can do other things exceptionally well. Films are arguably better than any other medium at compressing and juxtaposing things. So I think I can understand the lament in some quarters about what we don't get in the Aviator but what I was going to say about the, the biopic, I think the issue often is that this focus on an individual can get in the way of a true understanding of the past, can't it? Because yeah. you often get a situation where a character kind of conquering a personal problem becomes this kind of proxy through which you know, broader issues are complicated or resolved. So I think of a film like The King's Speech, where the implication <laughs> seems to be that George VI's ability to overcome his speech impediment was very important in helping to reassure uh, the British nation, you know, the British public at the outset of the war. And I don't know, I, I think such narratives can be important and comforting, but I think as an across-the-board thing, it can be a bit regrettable. Yeah. Now, The Aviator is a very interesting film in that regard. I mean, how do you see it sort of stacking up with more traditional biopic narratives, like I've sort of alluded to there?
1: I think, actually, to be fair to The Aviator, I think it kind of succeeds because it does almost the opposite, where it kind of reduces down, it kind of shrinks down so that, like these little struggles that howard hughes is having and again he frames them in terms of kind of like huge idealistic battles so you know it's like you know pan am doesn't control the sky for example you know these sort of like big vague philosophical kind of statements about what he's fighting for and why he's fighting for it uh, but the film kind of avoids kind of falling into some of the more um what you might call kind of heavy-handed literalism of biopics like it's notable that there's no closing coded text that explains to you how howard hughes died or tells you very simply what howard hughes legacy was in three sentences which is somehow even more reductive than like trying to compress it down to two (laughs) hours and so it has this effect of kind of making howard hughes's story and again this is why i think it works very well i'm i'm you know i'm arguably more fond of the kind of shorter, tighter, focused biopics that we've gotten in the past 20 years that tend to focus on a particular event and even treat like those... Lincoln,
4: something like that? Or...
1: Some, something like that, but even going back to things like, say, The Queen, for example, or, oh, yeah. or The yeah. Deal, or, or even like Frost-Nixon, where you have these kind of like pinpoint focus kind of accuracy, kind of like you know, historical films that are like, here's a single event or even Rush, for example. But what we're going to do is through that prism of this event, we're going to look at the character of these historical figures. And kind of, we're going to hope that maybe in this kind of narrow focus, we can illuminate character because I think that, yeah, you're entirely right that like biographical works, like long form writing is probably the best place to try and capture an entire life in prose, you know, in a, in a, in a medium that isn't actually living. But Mm -hmm. I think that like with, you know, film, it, it works better in kind of like a tighter, compressed kind of focus. And I think that why The Aviator gets away with this, with kind of that broader approach better than a lot of other biographical films is because it kind of makes it almost allegorical. It doesn't. You know, you mentioned that, that OCD and kind of the exaggeration of his OCD and the fact that that maybe doesn't line up with the, the historical record, or the historical fact. And even when I was, you know, talking about how it kind of glosses over some of the more complicated, uh, legacies mm-hmm. of Hughes and his, and his history, I think the film gets a pass from me at least for a lot of that because it feels like it's a broader story that just happens to be using a historical figure, it, it never feels like it's demanding to be taken very seriously or very literally or very studiously. Which is ironic. Like, again, you, you compare it to something like JFK, which is, you know, arguably even more historical fiction, but which is structured and told in such a way that, you know, Stone seems to be saying, see, I told you this is exactly what happened. You watch The Aviator, and particularly due to choices, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment in terms of, you know, the technique that was used, the colouring and the shading, and even, like, things as small as the shifting of the aspect ratio or the use of kind of voiceover from newsreel footage kind of contributes to a sense that you are, you know, watching something that is filtered through a prism rather than presenting reality. And again, you have that kind of discussion at the Hepburn home where, you know, Hepburn's mother says, you know, Oh, we all we're all expressionists now. I mean, why <laughs> yeah. why would you why would you paint something real when you can just take a photo? Um, and even like that discussion that Hepburn has, where you know she's like, "Movies are movies; they're not real life." So you have this sense of like almost Scorsese almost rising to the challenge of Hepburn's mother and filming something that isn't capturing real life per se, yeah. but is instead kind of more expressionist in terms yeah, of how yeah. it's approaching, as more stylized. And I think that that aspect of the film allows me to kind of excuse or get away with the way in which it kind of obscures or writes around the real history. Because it doesn't, it's obviously a Howard Hughes biopic, but it it feels like it's as much a Scorsese film or as much a parable or as much a kind of an allegory as it is any of those things. It's a story about, you know, again, that cliche of it's a story about a man trying to realize his vision, uh, which could just as easily apply to the man behind the camera as the character in front of it.
4: Yeah. And also one of the things um, that came to mind when you were speaking there was like when Catherine Hepburn turns up and talks exactly like a Catherine Hepburn character in a film would, you know, the kind of screwball kind of patter as well.
1: Oh, yeah, because Scorsese actually directed those scenes like screwball comedies. He instructed sort of Hepburn and he instructed DiCaprio to play them as kind of screwball comedies that would have been produced at the same time. So, it's yeah, again, and this is this is the thing we mentioned at the start where for Scorsese, you know, form and function kind of interlink where it's like what he's doing is inseparable from how he's doing it, but not in a way that is kind of showy. I mean I you know I picked up that the dialogue was stylized and heightened in the way they had the the Kate Blanchett love it hated performance here, you know the Oscar winning <laughs> love it hated performance here, which I kind of adore because I think it's meant to be heightened and stylized and cartoonish to an extent. I think it's meant to be you know it's notable that like Scorsese directed her to watch Hepburn's films so that she could perform her in real life, which is, is interesting. And I think that Blanchett notoriously avoided re reading biographies and instead read her memoirs because she didn't want to filter through anybody else's version of who Katharine Hepburn was rather than kind of just processing how Hepburn presented herself, which kind of again gives that layer of that sense of like wanting to avoid objectivity and just kind of embracing a kind of a, a stylized approach to it all.
4: Mm. And apparently the first day that Blanchett turned up on set was the day Catherine Hepburn died, It's just one of those really weird kind of things, you know,
0: Um,
4: just on the aviator as a biopic. It's interesting. It comes at a time when it seems like there'd been a bit of a shift in emphasis in biopics uh, on many occasions towards lesser known historical figures. So I'm thinking of things like Catch Me If You Can to uh, extend the DiCaprio uh, comparison, <laughs> which is what, just a couple of years ago, isn't it, at this point? Yeah. Um, George Clooney's film Confessions of a Dangerous Mind would be another example. So ostensibly, what the aviator is offering you is a more sturdy, familiar type of story in that respect. And it ostensibly seems to open with a traditional Hollywood device, doesn't it? So I'm talking about the the tableau with the mother.
1: Yeah. The, um, the sort of like Nixon-esque it reminds me a lot of the the sequence from Nixon by Oliver Stone speaking of yeah. Oliver Stone historical films which has a similar sort of sequence which is like here is the character's psychology explained to you through childhood trauma. yeah um,
4: cause and effect kind of thing yeah, yeah. yeah but there's something so kind of artificial and theatrical about the way it's presented to us in The Aviator that I think it kind of retains this air of mystery so I saw somebody compare it to the use of Rosebud in Citizen Kane you know something that doesn't necessarily <laughs> tell you as much as you might think and I think that, yeah, some of the other biopic elements, like the sort of traditional biopic elements, they're handled in a more sophisticated manner than you might expect. So I'm thinking about the fact that this is a film, okay, it's a film about Howard Hughes. It's a film called The Aviator. But when we hear about his round-the-world flight here, it's just kind of tossed off, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like we, get a of, we get a bit of newsreel footage. We get a map on the screen. And that's about it. It's not really given the prominent narrative focus you might expect. You know, you can imagine that sort of being its own narrative uh, of feature film length in its own right. So I think that's a very interesting choice.
1: And the great detail about that is that, like, the most important thing he does during that sequence is buy stock.
4: (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, So, yeah, OK, I wanted to circle back to uh, DiCaprio. because I know you talked a bit about him there earlier, but we went back to talk about Scorsese afterwards, I think. So, yeah. His second film with uh, Scorsese, *The Gangs of New York, and I think it's very interesting casting because, and, and you've kind of already brought this up, but there's this kind of correspondence between DiCaprio and Hughes in some respects, you know, the celebrity status, the play-by-image. Also, this correspondence with some of DiCaprio's earlier roles, where it kind of taps into his matinee idol appeal. But to be fair to him, he'd already demonstrated that he was skilled at Sort of conveying mental impairment, I guess, because he, I think he was Oscar nominated, wasn't he, for What's Eating Gilbert? Great. Oh, great, yeah. Yeah. So it's a very interesting performance. I mean, w- to what extent do you think he gets under the skin of Howard Hughes? I think it's a good performance. I think it's certainly a step up from his work on Gangs of New York, perhaps not as strong as some of his late performances for Scorsese. Like, I think The Wolf of Wall Street was a perfect fit.
1: Or Shutter Island, even. Um, and if you want to Island, go, yeah. Like, the, the kind of, that pathology, that sort of, like, really intense kind of coming, to, coming apart under pressure kind of approach.
4: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean... I've always thought of of DiCaprio as an actor who's very kind of gestural and what I mean by that is when I close my eyes and I think of DiCaprio acting I always seem to see him jabbing his index finger you know but he's also someone who seems very in control to me so I think he's very compelling here isn't he as someone who's struggling to keep a lid on things I'm thinking of like the times in the film where he sort of suddenly clasps his hands to his mouth when he can't stop repeating words for instance yeah so what aspects of his performance did you most appreciate?
1: And again, like, this is the thing where I mentioned the kind of Milos form and an Edward Norton one, and you can imagine the kind of Edward Norton style primal fear version of this movie. And it's quite different from what DiCaprio gives you, where there is this intensity of focus. But it always feels like, and again, it, it's that kind of like thin line where you have the sense of him being tightly wound and him being like on the verge of exploding. And again, this portrayal of kind of OCD and the idea that And again, this is one of the things where I'm kind of wary about, you know, you know, the the portrayal of kind of mental illness on film Mm -hmm. and kind of the, the question you, you mentioned kind of the, you alluded to the fact that, you know, some of the chronology may, may not, may not be entirely right with the portrayal of OCD. And to be fair to to DiCaprio and Scorsese, they did actually work with uh, psychologists in terms of like getting the portrayal right and trying not to sensationalize it or, or portray it as kind of in a way that's exaggerated. But I think that one of the things that works with the kind of allegorical quality of the film is that It often seems like he's so tightly wound that he is about to implode completely. And DiCaprio is one of those rare actors who can do that, who can pivot between those extremes of, I am the brightest guy in the room, I'm the center of attention, Mm -hmm. I'm the guy who you're listening to you can honestly, as an audience, believe that people would give me large amounts of money to just stand there and talk. And I mean, that's the the entire premise of The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, but like, you also have that other kind of flip side of, of his performances, which are, you can also believe me as somebody who is just one bad day away from completely collapsing into myself and ending up a nervous wreck lying on the ground. And again, films like The Departed kind of play to that as well. And I think that, what works really well in the aviator is that you get those two extremes. And I'm thinking of the example, uh, with his Bob Gross, um, where he's kind of like, you know, where he's like, Oh, I want to buy the first 40 planes that come off your conveyor belt line and give me like, that will give me a two year kind of exclusive on them. And it's. It begins with this big spiel, you know, where he's he's selling them on and he's buying them and, you know, back and forth banter. And you can see why Hughes is so, you know, able to get so far and is so compelling. But then you just have the little fleck of kind of dirt on Gross's lapel. And you can see in that scene, DiCaprio almost kind of pivoting. And again, the way in which Scorsese shoots it, where he's holding a kind of over, you know, On DiCaprio, he's not giving you an insert shot of the dirt, even though you can see the dirt in the corner of the frame. He's Mm -hmm. just trusting DiCaprio to kind of pivot within the scene and get from that performance of, well, aren't I great? I'm the man who can manage millions and millions of dollars to, well, now I'm unraveling right in front of your eyes. And again, I think that's something that speaks to the way in which Scorsese um, and DiCaprio kind of play off one another, kind of understand one another and get some of the best out of one another of, of their output. And I think that DiCaprio is very, very good here. And I think you're entirely right that it moves on that pivot from that kind of matinee idol sort of thing, where you have the celebrity and he's out with the young women and he's the subject of gossip and, and kind of mongering mm-hmm. and kind of like subject to all those flash bulbs going off in his face. And at the same time, then also wanting to be somebody who is taken seriously at what he does, which again, is a large part of kind of DiCaprio's kind of arc, you know, and, and I mentioned there trying to pivot from being a teen idol to a serious actor, but also mm-hmm. even like... Like the famous uh, Leonardo DiCaprio Oscar kind of snubbing, you know, allegations (laughs) that went around. And again, The Aviator is one of the I think it's one of the first examples of that because it was he got a nomination, one of the film's eleven nominations and five wins, but he got Mm -hmm. one, he got a nomination for Best Actor for his work here, he didn't win, and it kind of becomes this kind of like I think this is where the snowball really starts to build, where people start noticing that DiCaprio is very, very committed to getting a Best Actor Oscar, for getting a statuette that, you know, perhaps if one were being cynical, he could use to say, I am a serious actor. I'm no longer just Jack from Titanic. I'm no longer just a teen heartthrob. I'm somebody who is among the very best people at what I'm doing. And the idea that, like, DiCaprio's you know, almost laser-guided focus on this, which is paralleled only with, ironically enough, his Titanic co-star Kate Winslet as well, had a similar sort of campaign going on. She got there first with uh, Revolutionary Road. Did she win for Revolutionary Road? Oh, she won for The Reader. She won for The Reader. The Reader, yeah. Yes. Um. And again, the two of them starred together in Revolutionary Road, which was very much a give-us-both-Oscars movie. (laughs) Um. And you have that, like, throughout his career where you have DiCaprio's kind of star persona. And again, coming back to the star persona, because again, you know, DiCaprio described, was it Entertainment Weekly, called him the last movie star. Um yeah. Which, you know, kind of cements this idea that he is he is a movie star. And a large part of what a movie star is, what distinguishes a movie star, I would argue, from a more conventional actor, um, is that a star has a persona and that so much of their work plays off that persona and the audience's understanding of their persona. Yep. And DiCaprio's persona is defined by that sense of desperation. If you read Vulture, for example, you could argue that that desperation is that weird obsession that he had with Rihanna for a couple of years, or that, that weird summer where he seemed to be very into playing volleyball with 20 year old people in order to show that he was as athletic <laughs> as he ever was. But if you want to be more academic and more kind of, you know, a cinephile about it, you could say that it's reflected in his, like, single-minded pursuit of the Oscar, which led to things like The Revenant, where, you know, he was sitting out in the middle of, like, this freezing weather, eating raw bison liver, and almost like on the verge of death. And there's a sense in which when he finally got that Best Actor Oscar, it was almost like the Academy was saying, "Look, if we don't give it to him, he's going to kill himself <laughs> trying to earn it." And again, there's there's that intensity that you associate with DiCaprio in his best performances, and that desire to be taken seriously, and you can see that here in the way that he plays Hughes, where Hughes like is a man who no matter what he's doing wants to be taken seriously doing it. That introductory scene on the sh- on the set of Hell's Angels kind of lays it out where he's like I don't want them to call me junior. I'm Mr. Hughes. That's yeah. my name. You know? Um or like, you know, the, the demands that he places on people to be perfect around him. You could argue even like his cleanliness is an ex- you know, expression of that just taken to the greatest possible degree. And even like the scene with Hepburn's family where he refuses to be talked down to, where instead of engaging or arguing at the table, he just kind of demands their attention and kind of storms out because they refuse to give him the sense to make him the center of attention in their kind of arguments or discussions and like you you have that sense with hughes of it being a role that is almost perfectly tailored to what dicaprio is capable of doing at that point in his career and i think you were entirely right by the way and you say that it's better than you know gangs of new york i think he's quite good in gangs of new york but i think that's a role that doesn't play to his strengths most yeah. obviously um, the accent is is perhaps mm-hmm. the most literal example of that. But even like uh, Costigan as a character, doesn't he? The movie seems to want Costigan to be a more conventional leading man than I think DiCaprio is capable of. I think The Aviator much yeah. much more keenly kind of spots the sweet spot with a good DiCaprio performance, which is he can be incredibly charming. He has the looks of kind of a, a kind of a matinee idol, uh, but he also at the same time has this kind of drive and this yearn um, that, you know, isn't, yeah. you know, isn't necessarily what you would expect from somebody that handsome, that rich um, and that successful.
4: Yeah. Well, just to mention a few other particular moments that um, I don't think you brought up there, but yeah, you, you sort of see his personal magnetism on display. There's, there's this very interesting scene early on where he gets very interested in one of the waitresses at the coconut grove and yeah. it kind of feels like he's shining this spotlight on it, but also what I really enjoy about this performance is uh, some of the other times, things like when Errol Flynn takes his pee off his plate, you know, or when when he's staring at the bathroom doorknob. And Scorsese decided not to do these. I think there had been some consideration of doing some visual things with, you know, CGI germs or whatever uh, at certain points of the film. And I'm glad they didn't decide to go that way. I think, you know, DiCaprio can suggest with a look just how Trouble he finds things like that. In a way that's more than effective enough. Just the other thing I wanted to mention on a trivia point was that um, last night I was watching Rules Don't Apply, which is the Warren (laughs) Beatty, um, Howard Hughes. Have you seen that film?
1: I I have not. But again, you reminded me of the fact that Warren Beatty was also trying to make a Howard Hughes film. (laughs) Um, Sorry. Well, I...
4: Yeah, well, I only got an hour in, and it's not because of any anything to do with the film. I was just very tired last night, and I was hoping to watch it before we spoke today. I just didn't get the chance. But very interesting that DiCaprio is 30 when he makes The Aviator. Uh, and you think of those scenes in the film with, you know, the Alan Alda character, the hearings. We also see those hearings uh, on screen in Rules Don't Apply, play with uh, Warren Beatty as an 80-year-old playing Howard Hughes. So just, I can't think of any comparable example where two actors 50 years apart in age have played the same figure at the same point in time. (laughs) Very interesting. Just on Hughes again, I mean, we've talked a bit about how Scorsese's made these comparisons with the screenplay to Raging Bull, and you're saying, you know, you think perhaps that's a little bit of a stretch, it sounds like. And I think there is a sense, though, that this character is in conversation with some of those other Scorsese protagonists, even if it's not as exacting a character study, you know. Um, There's some Christ-like imagery in the film. Now, Scorsese says it's not intentional, but I'm thinking of the scene in the screening room, for instance. With the
1: desert, you know, there's no germs in the desert. It's hot, but there's no germs. The sense that he has to go out and find himself, yeah.
4: Yeah, the projector light light forms kind of a halo behind him as well, is what I was thinking. But also the scene of Catherine Hepburn washing... Howard Hughes' feet, for example. Yeah. You know, like somebody like Charlie in Mean Streets, you know, there's, we go for this ritual of fire where Hughes burns all his clothes in Mean Streets. Charlie was always um, holding his finger to the flame and that, and so on. You mentioned the perfectionism, and I, it made me think of Casino, because there's a scene in Casino yeah. where Robert De Niro insists <laughs> that the blueberries and the blueberry muffins must be exactly spaced apart. Yeah. And I can't remember what Hughes asks for at one point in this film, but he asks, he, he gives some kind of it's food order. Yeah. It's, it's
1: 10 cookies, but he doesn't want, he wants the chips properly kind of allocated and yeah. not too near the edges.
4: Yeah. So I was thinking that, that you know, there are, we can see these parallels with other Scorsese characters. I think I also agree with what you were saying earlier that, you know, perhaps we shouldn't try to take them too far. If that that sounds like what you were saying earlier anyway.
1: Well, no, I mean, I, I think that, you know, he is very much a Scorsese character. And again, one of the things that I think works very well i mentioned that the movie being kind of allegorical and i think that you're entirely right in terms of like spotting those parallels with you know the halo in in the screening room or the kind of the obsession with the desert going out into the desert and finding himself even if the desert just happens to be a desert on screen rather than an actual desert which somehow manages to be both jesus christ and possibly martin scorsese at the same time but we're not going to read too much into that but i mean even even things like the the way in which the film kind of is a as, again, I mentioned the, the allegory at the heart of it, but the idea that that sense of kind of yearning and isolation and connection, which runs through so much of Scorsese's filmography, but I don't think, I can't remember it being ever as kind of close to the surface as it is here, where you have this idea that as much as the movie you know, is about Howard Hughes and kind of draws on history and is inspired by real events and kind of is, is kind of this love letter to the history of cinema, as well as kind of like looking at this kind of metaphor for movie making as well. It's also very much a story about stuff like physical contact. And you, you mentioned that sequence, you mentioned a couple of those sequences, like where Earl Flynn, played by Jude Law, picks the pee off his plate, for example. Yeah. But this this sense of, you know, the aviator almost being about sublimation um, about being about, you know, sort of like being about what it's not literally about, what it's actually about, where you have the paralleling of the opening scene where the mother, you know, talks about quarantine and has him spell it out, Q-U-A-R. Mm-hmm. But then you have the discussion kind of later on, where his press agent Mayer is talking about the filming of The Outlaw, and it's about S Q. E X, for yeah. example, but you have even that that sequence that you mentioned where he's you know touching Kate Blanchett's back, and you have that wonderful cut. It's it's a fantastic cut of his hand moving down her back, cutting to the hand kind of moving down her you know the the surface of the plane. For example, you have the sequence where you know when Louis V. Mayer is kind of touching Hepburn all over, you cut to Howard's hand, which is just kind of rubbing against his pants. For example, you have the kind of the, the red meat at the family dinner. You have this idea of, you know, the the obsession that he has with Jane Russell's breasts, but not in a way that is portrayed as kind of explicit or lurid or purient, to quote um the the the, the Motion Picture Association, but which is, is crafted in a way that's designed to parallel with his building of planes. Like you have yeah. him in that meeting where he designs her brasserie, you know, where he's like, We are not getting enough production out of Jane Russell's breasts. Like that's immediately following <laughs> a sequence in which he hands a picture of the Hercules um to his assistant, and he's been doodling both of them on paper idly you know you have the cloud expert who becomes the expert in breasts uh, during that (laughs) briefing in front of the motion picture association but even during those open scene opening scenes when he talks about clouds he talks about nimbus clouds being like gigantic big Mm -hmm. breasts and you have this sense throughout that like what's actually bothering hughes what's actually getting underneath his skin is is this idea of intimacy and connection with other people. And you have this idea, you know, you have a parallel throughout. You have, so, for example, Hepburn. He teaches Hepburn how to fly, and she kind of takes that from him. But you have, in that introductory scene on the golf course, she's, I shower seven times a day to keep clean, which is something that, you know, is... is becomes kind of later on you could argue maybe informs his reaction against what's happening you you mentioned the kind of flames and the fire and the idea of purification that comes from those where after Hepburn leaves he takes first of all her clothes but then his clothes and then the clothes he's literally wearing and burns them and again that's portrayed as an expression of, you know, that, that kind of like psychological disorder, um, that kind of like acting out, that OCD almost, that kind of like compulsive behavior. But it's also very much a reaction, even though he doesn't see it as such, a reaction to her departure. It's him kind of lashing out or him acting out, but it's, yeah. it's very much a kind of a response to that. You have that kind of sequence in the screening room where before she shows up, the red light flashes and he's kind of bathed in red before. Kate, who's, you know, Catherine Hepburn, with her distinctive red hair and kind of freckles, shows up on the other side of the door. And you have even like red lighting in the cockpit with kind of... Oh, he says, you know, I hear you, Kate, I could always hear you, even in the cockpit with the engines on. And he's obviously alluding to the fact that they were flying together. But there's a sense in which his obsession with aviation, which is portrayed as something very tactile. He has, for for example, he has another OCD attack when he's picking out the steering wheel and his hands are actually touching the steering wheel and he can't decide what part of the plane he wants to touch, the part of the plane that he's going to have to touch. He can't decide on what that is and so he has a panic attack coming out of that because, again, it's, it's this act of touching becomes kind of painful for him as well. And I kind of love that so much of the movie, while it is very much, you know, a historical study of Hollywood a celebration of Hollywood and a look at the life of Howard Hughes is also, you know, a fundamentally kind of a Scorsese film in a sense of being about a man trying to connect of kind of that intimacy of kind of like trying to you know find a way to touch or being afraid to touch being afraid to come into contact with somebody else of kind of opening himself up to to, to other people. And I think that there's a lot in there. I think that there's a lot of weight in there, um uh, which is kind of yeah
4: yeah i think the point i was just trying to make was that i think again it's not perhaps as unflinching as the best of scorsese's work even though it's very much in line with you know those other characters oh yeah the other one the other comparison i thought of was that this is a film that ends with hughes um looking at his own reflection as does raging bull of course with jake lamotta um i think we should talk a bit more about the craft on display here because it's as we said it's you know you could with Scorsese, you always have to talk about the form and the content, you know. So his aim here was to recapture some of the visual magic of films that blew him away as a kid. And he wanted to use the range of colors that audiences were familiar with. So here the divide is that everything before the scene with the Hepburn family is designed to look like uh, two-strip Technicolor. Yeah. You know, where everything is like this weird bluey green, isn't it? You know, like Charquoise. the golf the- yeah, like the turqu- turquoise, um, pee on his plate or the, the golf course, the lawn on the golf course is what I was thinking of. And then everything from the, that point onwards, when we get to the Hepburn house is more like free strip technicolor. Yeah. So I think that's one of the most purely enjoyable aspects of the film, to be honest, just to kind of, especially, especially that first period, you know, the, the, the process that's meant to be like two strip technicolor. I think it's just a, a marvel to look at, I think.
1: It absolutely is. It's completely stunning. And again, even that, that crashing sequence is another one where I think where he's crashing into the field and they're all the grass and all the props are turquoise as well. And it does give the film a kind of a distinctive texture. And you have a bit of that running through the film as well, where obviously Scorsese is, you know, a big fan of film, big proponent of film. And this was shot on film as well. But you have kind of editors and kind of like the cinematographer talking about uh, like using digital technology, um, using an LUT, which is a lookup table, which allows you to do kind of instantaneous color grading and video editing rather than getting the film developed in a particular way which allows you to basically kind of layer like when you're watching the the footage when you're watching the kind of dailies you can see what it will look like after that lookup table is applied Um, and so you have this kind of sense of Scorsese being, and again, this is the thing where, you know, we talked at the start about Scorsese as somebody who loves the history of cinema, the tactile kind of history of cinema, and who is, you know, nervous about the future of cinema. It's, there's a tendency to overplay that where, you know, there are sequences mm-hmm. even in this where you can see him using green screen. You can see him kind of emulating techniques that you see with digital cinematography where the camera moves through physical objects. I'm thinking, for example, of sequences where Howard Hughes is flying in his plane and the camera like literally moves through the windscreen to get a close up on DiCaprio. And, like, there's a sense of Scorsese, you know, he isn't a Luddite. He isn't somebody who's kind of, you know, he isn't even arguably as extreme as Christopher Nolan in his kind of love mm-hmm. of film as a kind of as a medium um, or as kind of a mechanism for recording. And so it's kind of great to see that watching The Aviator where you have Scorsese using modern techniques or kind of relatively contemporary techniques and, and te- relatively, you know, contemporary craft to create a love letter to classic cinema. And I mean you're entirely right that the first half of the film um is astounding that use of color is kind of striking and makes it look immediately very distinct from anything that was being released at Hollywood around the same time. Yeah. Uh, but what doesn't you know the the tendency to talk about that wonderful kind of two-strip color design uh means that it somewhat overshadows even in the second half, which looks absolutely beautiful. Yeah, that sequence where Hepburn decides that she's leaving uh, and has the conversation with him in his study, where you have these rich reds and browns, and it looks almost like something from, you know, like Gone with the Wind or kind of a contemporary kind of 1940s film. And again, to see that in a in a movie that costs that much money, released in 2004, is, is striking. And again, it, it's, it's something that speaks to Scorsese's ability to create something that is at once a love letter to the history of cinema, but also entirely accessible.
4: Yeah, it's highly interesting because I think, and you've pretty much said this already, but the desire to create that vintage look, you might understand that as a nostalgic impulse, but just the fact that it actually entailed an immense technical challenge, you know, because it involved all these sophisticated digital means being brought in. And I think what he said became evident was that his decisions about colour would impact virtually everything else, you know. And we kind of talked about a comparable situation when we discussed The Wizard of Oz, I think. Um, But we're talking about things like how the set and the costumes and the makeup were all affected by this overriding choice. So, for instance, apparently Hepburn's dress in that scene where he takes a flying... It was a peach dress in reality, but it shows up as kind of a beige on screen. But yeah, I think there's something to be said about Scorsese as someone who he's never really rested on his laurels, as far as I can see, when it comes to film technique. I'm thinking of how like Hugo, of of that sort of batch of 3D films, that was one of the ones that used it the most effectively, I think. And of course, the, the aging technology in The Irishman is the most recent example. And that was one of the things I found a bit frustrating about the Scorsese v. Marvel discourse, and I'm talking mainly about online Twitter discourse, I think, really, is that it seemed like so many people were kind of proceeding on the basis that this was like an old man yelling at clouds uh, situation, and I think it's very unfair to who Scorsese actually is. There's just one more element to that, though, which is that, from what I understand here, though, there is an interesting wrinkle, which is that wherever they did have to outsource things, you know, so things like CG element creation or map paintings, um I think the visual effects supervisor Rob Legato said that they mainly relied on smaller facilities, you know, places run by two or three people. And what he said was that we wanted to keep the philosophy of hand crafting the film. And Scorsese said that, like... You know these digital means—they're actually kind of liberating. They gave him more freedom than he had before, in like a painterly sort of way. But I think that philosophy of handcrafting the films is an interesting uh, idea. I think maybe that's what Scorsese was driving at. Maybe that's what a point of difference with some of the films he was kind of aiming at in his kind of 2019 Firestorm. You know, I'm not sure he believes they have the same kind of philosophy.
1: Well, yes, he he's he's talked about the difference between kind of like, you know, consumer friendly art and product is how he defines yeah. the difference. And again, you know, I, I think he's being quite unfair to, to some of those movies, which is a strange thing to say about the highest grossing movies of all time. Gee, Scorsese, cut them a break. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, no, that's somebody who like, you know, likes some of those films, but also understands that for young people, those films will be a gateway into, into more cinema. And, you know, I think that, you know, that's good. And I'm hesitant to kind of call people out for that or to kind of shame them for liking them but I do think that yeah there is kind of like in that sense of Scorsese talking about them he has been careful to delineate between the idea that he is, you know, that he's critiquing mass media in general. And again, you, you mentioned in the article that he talked about, like that, that New York Times article, which is very, very worth reading. He's very clearly on the side of populist entertainment, like going back and looking at the history of cinema. It's not like he's going, well, I mean, actually, if you look at, say, French silent films in particular or the German expressionist, it's like, no, mm-hmm. no, he he actually understands cinema is a populist medium and has always been very crowd-pleasing. And there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. Um, And even like, When he has those discussions and when he, that, that interview where he talked about the, the fact he couldn't get the aviator made today. Like the aviator is to a certain extent a special effects movie. Um, it has a couple of absolutely jaw dropping sequences in it. And obviously they're created with CGI and are far, far, far safer then the scenes that they're emulating. I think that when Howard Hughes shot um, Hell's Angels, he lost three pilots um, doing it. He obviously had a a crash himself as well. Um, Obviously here it's all done by CGI, so there was no need to put people in that sort of danger, which is good, but they are breathtaking to look at. That Mm -hmm. sequence with the camera and the dogfight as he's kind of driving through it is dazzling. That sequence where he crashes uh, the plane through Los Angeles, um, you know, sort of in the second half, is absolutely stunning. And spectacle, you know, I would argue on par with, you know, most superhero blockbusters in terms of like actual tension, actual scale, and kind of a sense of kind of majesty and, and a behemoth running through it. So Scorsese's critique of kind of Marvel isn't grounded in kind of that, well, movies have to be solemn and serious and there's no room for spectacle in there. And there's no room for kind of special effects and there's no room for the use of CGI. Um, he's, he's mentioned that the difference with product is that the, his conception of product is that you're meant to consume it and just throw it away. And I think that's maybe where I think he's being a bit unfair to Marvel because I do think that there are people to whom those movies genuinely mean a lot. I think like Wakanda forever means a lot to moviegoers and I don't think that it will stop meaning a lot. I don't think they're going to throw it up, throw it away, you know, in 10 years time i think in 10 years time people who saw black panther in the cinema and were moved by it will still be saying wakanda forever to themselves or to other people and it will still carry that weight and i think that's what he's being unfair with but he was always
4: he always seemed a bit more emollient than people were giving him credit for to be fair like he said that look these films would have meant something different to me i might want to make one of these films if i was a younger man you know it it seemed like a lot of that was what kind of got missed out in a lot of the discussion you know
1: yeah, that, that's fair as well. And I, I do think that, like, you're entirely right there when you mention, like, the use of 3D in Hugo, for example, the use of, you know, de-aging, uh, kind of CGI in The Irishman, where, you know, Scorsese isn't, isn't a little And again, this is one of those things where, that binary debate that you have tends to reduce things down, you know, add item yeah. to their to their most simple, you know, most caricatured form, where you do have, as you pointed out, the old man shaping a clouds that may or may not be shaped like breasts. But you have this kind of <laughs> sense of <laughs> yeah. uh you know, the sense of like reducing Scorsese down to a grumpy old man who's watching the world pass him by. And you're like, no, have you have you watched a Scorsese film? And I mean even in terms of even looking past like craft or technique there are directors, you know, at the age of 20 who would struggle to have the energy that Scorsese mm-hmm. brings to three hours of The Wolf of Wall Street, for example. Um, And I think that, yeah, I think that, like, even in The Aviator, which is a film that is yearning for kind of old hollywood that is nostalgic and celebratory of old hollywood how much of the film unfolds in the coconut grove of the ambassador hotel to pick an example of that you know the casting of gwen stefani who had never acted in a film before as as gene harlow which is again kind of a wonderful touch of kind of sense of well i'm bringing old hollywood to life you know necessarily without you know without kind of it needing to be a focus or without needing to justify it but using new techniques to do that and having that point of intersection between past and present because again yeah the The aviator is a film about hollywood's past but it's also a film about where hollywood was in 2004 um and i think Mm -hmm. that it's inseparable i think that you you can't separate those two things they exist on a line a continuity between them it's not well, the past was better or, you know, the way we used to do things was right and we've kind of ventured away from that. It's like, no, the the way we used to do things is great. And it's great that we can now realize that on screen without killing three stunt people, you know?
4: And I think as, in addition to that, I think we, maybe we can overemphasize Scorsese. Maybe we need to be more generous and acknowledge some collaborators, you know? Yes. So I'm thinking of the work of uh, cinematographer Robert Richardson here. Now, someone, Richardson, somebody who'd worked with Scorsese quite a few times, beginning, I think, with Casino, um, and as recently as Hugo, if I'm not mistaken. And he's worked with a lot of people. He's worked with Quentin Tarantino uh, on multiple occasions, for instance. Now, Richardson, as far as I can see, is someone who's very adept at lighting a scene in a way that reflects a character's behavior or their mental state. And I think what's great about The Aviator is that this is a project where that can be done quite ostentatiously at times. Yeah. Um, so there are times where you have strong sources of light in otherwise quite darkened rooms. For instance, like there's the scene where Hughes interviews um, Faith Domeg where there's a real h- harshness to proceedings. But also things like the film premiere, where you know Hughes is clearly uncomfortable and everything's kind of overexposed. And in the hearings, that's relevant too, isn't it? We yeah. get a similar sort of effect there. The interesting thing that I, th- I mean, it's kind of on the nose, perhaps in some sense, that this is a story about someone who can like conquer the skies. Um, but then the interiors gradually become more confining as the film wears on. But it the way it's done is just beautiful, I think. I mean, as strange as that quarantine scene is that we start with, it's got this distinct sense of like maternal warmth, hasn't it? Yeah. There's also a scene comparatively early on with Hughes at home with Hepburn where the camera sort of takes a bit of a tour of the house in quite an untroubled way.
0: Yeah. And
4: then later we get the bathroom scenes and the screening room sequences and so on. So yeah, I wanted to move on to talk about the screening room scene in particular, but just in general, I think Richardson's work is
1: outstanding. Oh, it is. They apparently briefly considered shooting it, I think, in the 1.33 aspect ratio in order to kind of more faithfully recreate that old format. And they said that, yeah, there was no way that they could actually do that. They'd have to actually, you know, remaster it for kind of 1.88 and then have to Mm -hmm. kind of scale it in because cinemas aren't, you know, cinemas at 2004 weren't designed to screen in that ratio. So what they did instead, and this is kind of actually really heartening and really warming, is you'll notice a lot of the compositions, while they are shot in widescreen, have the characters clustered around the center so as to kind of evoke that old style of kind of filmmaking which again is a nice subtle touch as yeah, an yeah. example of you know again we we mentioned at the start in terms of what makes Scorsese special is that sense of being you know acknowledging the past and kind of like referencing the past but without being kind of beholden to it or kind of like you know without alienating anybody so you know you're going to see The Aviator it's going to be in the format that you're used to watching a movie for the most part sometimes the aspect ratio shifts you know as he jumps between newsreel footage or or between kind of documentary footage or whatever but generally speaking, it's it's in a form that you recognize. It's the same widescreen ratio that you would have gone and seen Ali in, to pick an example, you know, from around the same time. But within that, you have this incredible attention to detail. You have this kind of sense of, the you know, Robert Richardson and kind of, you know, Scorsese structuring the frame so as to draw your eye to the same place that they would draw it in a film from that period, even if you don't realize it, which is striking.
4: Yeah, so just on that screening room sequence, and I'm talking about where he kind of holds himself up in there for several days, it seems like. So Scorsese's talked about how screening rooms are extremely important to him. So I've got a book called uh, Scorsese on Scorsese uh, by Michael Henry Wilson, where he talks. Scorsese tells a story about an executive coming into his personal screening room uh, where he works, and the executive comes in to talk to him. And this apparently just infuriates Scorsese. You know, this this should be a sacred space. I can't do business with this guy. You know, he describes the screening room as a natural sanctuary. What he What he actually says was everything's up there on the screen. Life, sex, the imaginary, everything. So I think it's also very interesting then to have someone who feels that way about locations like this direct the film where he turns the screening room here into a kind of prison doesn't he and it's it's a beautiful scene i think it's just incredibly well stylized you know like the spotlights on the milk bottles um that ominous red light bulb which i think you mentioned earlier also when alec baldwin's character turns up and you know sort of blows the smoke through the keyhole
0: yeah
4: and i've already mentioned the halo but so i guess the halo provides some evidence of some of the more positive qualities of the screening room but yeah I, i just love that scene
1: yeah And it almost becomes, and it's it's kind of that interesting kind of argument, that push and pull between it, where as an audience, we realize that this is a point of Hugh's kind of like degeneration, where he's kind of collapsing into himself. He's becoming this kind of figure, this, you know, you have the moment where after uh, one trip kind of leaves, he's like, yeah, they can't see him like that. You know, we should remember him how he is, uh, how he was, Mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to how he is now. And a sense in which he has become this kind of like almost circus Kind of sideshow figure. That wonderful camera kind of pull back, that zoom out, where it kind of pulls back on yeah. the wall and reveals all the milk bottles filled with urine, for example. Um, again, that that's an example of kind of like that Howard Hughes of popular memory, kind of where you have the if you're making a Howard Hughes film, you have to film a sequence in which there's urine lined up in jars, uh, because of course you do. But like even within that, I think that there's more of a kind of an ambiguity around it, where. It's very clear that for Hughes going out and being with people is difficult for him. And so the screening room almost is a sacred space in the way that Scorsese describes it. Like, and again, it's notable that when you talked about, like, Scorsese talking about screening rooms, it does almost sound like he's describing a sacred place. And for Scorsese, somebody who is almost a priest, whose work is informed by Catholicism, it almost makes sense that you have these Jesus moments that you described. You have those sequences where, for example, you have kind of the halo effect or where you have him looking at pictures of the desert and kind of saying that the desert will make me clean. Again, that sense of like Jesus wandering out into the desert. And you have this Sense of it being a moment of kind of you know he is lost there it it is kind of unraveling and again this Mm -hmm. is a point where Scorsese gets to go fully stylized in terms of filmmaking where he doesn't have to you know there's no sense of this being this reflecting anything more than the character's own internal psychological state so it doesn't have to be literal it doesn't have to be something that makes sense in kind of you know a linear A B C fashion but you have this kind of sense of you know sort of like almost spiritual kind of journey happening there, an almost kind of spiritual connection and kind of a a delving into the self kind of happening. You have the shaggy beard almost that renders him almost Christ-like to a certain extent. And you have a sense of, while Hughes does have to go out into the world and he does have to go back out, he has to go to the Senate hearings, he has to assert control, and then he has to go and he has to fly his uh, Hercules or his spruce goose, uh, as it were, and he has to show the world that he can do it and that he gets to stay in America. There is a sense of that screening room you know, whether healthily or not, being a space that he controls entirely. And again, there there is something that feels, you know, again, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but something that feels very much like a director making a movie that is in part about the experience of making a movie or being a director, where it's like, yes, the screening room is this almost spiritual place in another movie you imagine that a character having the journey that Hughes has in the screening room would like go out into the desert and smoke some peyote or something you know and have that journey to spiritual awakening or kind of self-awareness now it is obviously notable that you know he doesn't pull himself out of the screening room as it were you have one trip coming to taunt him almost like satan Um, who's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, just, just give it up. Just, just surrender it. Just, you can stay in that screening room forever. As long as, you know, you just sign over and, and let Pan Am buy your, your, your equipment, your stock, uh, all your intellectual property. Just sign the deal and, and all this will go away. You can stay in the screening room forever. You have Hepburn coming to him and, you know, trying to to get him out and being like well we can go flying if you want or kind of you know thank Mm -hmm. you or trying to make things right and in the end you do have you know ava gardner who 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 does a lot of the work of bringing hughes back to humanity taking him out taking him back to his house cleaning him up pouring him a drink and kind of convincing him that he he can go out and he can talk to the senate so like there is a sense in which while kind of an ambivalence almost to this idea because you do have the screening room as a space that is ethereal, otherworldly and kind of, you know, almost religious. But it's also a place where he can't stay. It's a place where it's not healthy for him to stay. Um, And again, there's there's that interesting kind of ambiguity, that push and pull between them that I find fascinating watching the film.
4: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned Trip as uh, being like Satan because when Hughes emerges from the screening room, it's framed so that uh, he's in the frame of the Hells Angels poster, Yeah. but we can't see the second word of that title. So, yeah, <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Um, Darren, I guess we're kind of almost wrapping up here. However, um, you know, we talked about a lot of the film, but there's a lot of film to discuss here. So what, what have we missed?
1: Actually, just a very small thing, but I absolutely love um, that kind of huge go-to hiring strategy is whatever you're getting paid, I'll double it. Which is like the worst negotiating tactic ever, but I kind of love that he kinda of sticks to his guns. It's like, how much are you getting paid? Five thousand dollars a year? I'll give you ten. How much are UCLA paying you? I'll double it. Kind of like I do like <laughs> that it's kind of a no frills kind of like uh I want this to happen sort of way. And again, you have that sense of DiCaprio playing that kind of high energy. Again, almost like a screwball comedy. It's notable that this happens in the first half of the movie a lot, where it's very much like, look at the energy of this character just kind of rhyming stuff off as well. Um, I, I really kind of like that stuff. And again, that energy that the film has in its first half um, as well.
4: Yeah, it's true. I mean, the emphasis on business is definitely simplified. And um I, I think I saw somebody arguing that the film's kind of valorizing Hughes as an entrepreneur. But I think it's also fair to say that the precise nature of that entrepreneurship is largely kept off screen, isn't it? Like you say, <laughs> yeah. just barks out orders. But yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's not exactly like, you know, a pro-capitalist movie. It's not an anti-capitalist movie either. I just think it's like, well, Hughes was a businessman, so I guess we have to have him doing business. So what are we going to do? Let's just put in the style of like a, you know, a, a, again, the 30s <laughs> screwball comedy. Like you can imagine him walking through an office throwing newspapers around going, get on that. I want you to cover that. And when I come back, I want this bought. I want this matter settled. Yeah, see? Um, you know, if this weren't, and again, <laughs> what, what was the age rating on The Aviator actually? I'm just kind of wondering. Um, PG-13 actually turns out it was in the States anyway as well. But yeah, there's something kind of very, like, it's an adult movie, but it's an adult movie that is something that you could absolutely show kids, which I kind of love about it as well. Um, I really, really like. And again, that screwball comedy energy is part of it, because that's a, that's a kind of an energy that I associate with a lot of those movies, you know, from the 30s, uh, those kind of screwball romantic comedies, mm. where it's like, we're talking about stuff that kids won't get, but we're doing it quickly enough and with enough energy and enough jokes that they'll be entertained anyway. And there's a lot of that um around how the first half of The Aviator operates that I really, really like.
4: Yeah. Great stuff. Uh, all right, Darren. So I think we'll leave it there. But yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And um, before we do leave for today, I mean, where can people find you online if they want to hear more
1: from you? Uh, you can find me online at Darren underscore Mooney on Twitter. I write at the movie blog with a zero and seven O in the word movie. But if you just search for Darren Mooney, uh, you'll probably come back with the blog quickly enough as well. So I co-hosted another podcast with my good friend Andrew Quinn called The 250. Uh, Carl's actually, we've crossed over with the Movie Palace a couple of times, um, Mm -hmm. talking about the movies on the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. So yes, hopefully as this is going out, uh, you'll be able to join us uh, in the middle of a discussion, a two-part discussion they're having with the wonderful Tony Black, who I believe you may know. Yeah, name rings a bell. does. Name seems vaguely familiar. Uh, But we'll be discussing um, Henry George Clouseau's 1953 Wages of Fear. Um, And then Tony has also invited us to appear on his new podcast, The New Wave. Um, And we'll be discussing William Friedkin's 1977 remake Sorcerer as well. So that will be coming out kind of in the middle of that. But if you are listening to this episode in particular, you may be interested in a series that will be running later in the year. I don't have an exact date. Probably July-ish. But we'll be kicking off A Summer of Scorsese. I meant that, you know, Scorsese is one of the most, you know, heavily featured directors on the IMDb 250 at the moment, seven films. So we'll be running through those seven films. We're going to see if we can probably slot in Hugo as well around the same time. Hopefully we'll be able to convince Carl to join us for one of those discussions. So kind of keep that in mind for later in the year.
4: Yeah, and there may well be another crossover between our podcasts as well at some point, which I'm very much looking forward to. More details to come uh, in future listeners. Um, Cheers, Darren. I think uh listeners you can find the movie palace at all the usual places uh on twitter facebook and instagram but i hope you've enjoyed our look back at the aviator that's all for today so i hope you can join me next time listeners when the curtain rises once again at the movie palace
1: Thank you very much for listening to this very special clip episode. We'd like to think of it as something equivalent to a Martin Scorsese montage episode where the entire episode of the Two Fifty that you just listened to was actually an episode of another podcast, but don't worry. We'll be back next week with a regularly scheduled episode of the podcast. The wonderful Eva Martin will be joining us to discuss the departed from 2006, which I can tell Jay is just excited to be talking about.
3: Microprocesses. <laughs> How's
1: your mother, Jay? Um, How's your mother? <laughs> But yes, uh, we'll be back next week talking about The Departed with the wonderful Eva Martin. Until then, if people are looking for a bit more Jay, where can they find you online? Ask Jay Coyle on Twitter. And you can follow the podcast at Atha250. You can follow me at Darren underscore Mooney. Take it easy, guys. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye.